Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. We begin Midweek Motorsport this week with the sad news of the death of Sir Sterling Moss, the man they called Mr. Motorsport. Coming up, we'll have Bruce Jones and Joe Bradley and their memories of Sir Sterling. But let's start our tribute to him with Andrew Marriott. Andrew, you knew Sir Sterling for many years, but what was your first recollection of him? My first recollections, really, John, was when I was just a schoolboy. I was one of those kids that was at the back of the class reading motorsport magazine and motoring news and autosport and not paying too much attention. Um, and I, so, so I was absolutely wrapped with the great battle for the world championship in 1959 between Mike Hawthorne and Sterling Moss. But do you know what? I was actually a Mike Hawthorne fan and I wanted him to win the championship. As he did. Of course, now we look at it, that was a ridiculous decision of mine. Sterling was a much better driver than Mike Hawthorne and deserved to win that championship. And of course, you know, we, we've all heard over the last few days the stories of how, you know, he went to the stewards and said Mike shouldn't be disqualified. And because of that, Mike won the world championship uh, at the race in Portugal. In fact, the point scoring was really strange in those days. And had we had the current point scoring, Sterling, of course, won four races that year, would have won the World Championship. And I think on two other occasions, he would have won the World Championship. His his last World Championship, I think he was four times second and then three times third. Those were his last seven seasons in Formula One. Um, But okay, Sterling Moss was always said to be the best racing driver that never won the World Championship. But I say Sterling Moss was the greatest all-round motorsports person ever. And I say that, John, because not only did he win Formula One races, he almost won Le Mans twice. Mm -hmm. He won Sebring. He won the Targa Floria. He won the Mille Amelia. He broke land speed records at Bonneville. And he was a fantastic rally driver. He finished second in the Monte Carlo rally. He finished... um, second in the Alpine rally, the other great rally back in the 1950s. He was just a superb all-rounder. And I also say he is the most commercially savvy racing yes. driver there's ever been, you know. Well, and you talk about his his career and everybody uh, in recent days, and, and rightly so, I understand, has been talking about his single-seater career. Uh, you know, how he, he started with that uh, little 500cc Formula 3 car that his dad, who had done a bit of racing himself, of course, bought oh, for he him. His dad raced twice at the Indianapolis 500. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But, but but wasn't it sports car racing, Andrew, that, that got him started as a professional? At that point, you know, it was the bank of mum and dad. Many racing yeah. drivers have done the same. But in terms of his professional career, wasn't it sports cars that kicked him off? Absolutely. Sports cars that got him really noticed by the factory teams like Maserati and Jaguar. Uh, he won the first TT race at Dundrod. Uh, He won that when he was 21 in the Jaguar XK120, and he went on to win that race another twice. And then, of course, he went to Sebring very early on in his career in the Little Oscar, owned by Briggs Cunningham. It's there in the the Cunningham uh, Naples Museum right now in in Florida. You can see that car. I've seen it quite recently, in fact. And he won that race, and that's what put him on the map. But he had a fantastic career. I'd say he was probably the best sports car racer ever. 
Uh, OK, he didn't win them all. He came second twice, did win his class. So he, he stood on the top step of the podium once. He did win his class once. But he won everything else that was big. I mean, the greatest sports car race of all, Mille Emilia. He won the Targa Florio. He won so many other sports car races as well. I was just looking through some of the stats, actually, John. In 1960, he had a run where he won successively 16 races. Yeah. Of those 16 races, they were in seven different countries, including a sports car race in Cuba, another sports car race in the Bahamas, sports car race in South Africa, the US Grand Prix and Rob Walker's Lotus 18. <laughs> the cars in those that run of 16 races in a row that he won included Aston Martin DB4 GTs and Maserati bird cages and, and all sorts. And that, that just shows how unbelievably good he was at climbing into yes. different race cars. You know, fantastic. Uh, John, I just wanted to go on, back to one of my very early memories. You asked me about my early memories. On my 18th birthday uh, in 1961, or around about that for my 18th birthday present, I was taken to Alton Park Gold Cup, which was where Sterling won in the famous Ferguson four-wheel drive Formula One car. And I remember it. We went in the Vauxhall Velox, the family Vauxhall Velox, to Alton Park. And I remember standing there at Old Hall Corner watching him go by. It was very damp and wet conditions. And, uh, you know, he beat the uh, Coopers of Jack Brabham and Bruce McLaren. And I believe that was the last ever Formula One race won by a front-engine racing car. So that's one of my abiding memories of his early career. Well, you also and, mentioned, though, of, of his, uh, in terms of his savvy, uh, and you worked very closely with him in your sports marketing days. I certainly did, John. And the thing about Sterling was he did love a deal. And um, you know, if he could do, um, say, four public appearances at £1,000 for four days in a week, he preferred to do that than do one at £4,000. He did love meeting the public, but he was a brand, wasn't he? He wasn't just a brand in motor racing. He was a, he was a totally British brand for over 50 years. It, just remarkable. He, he was so commercially astute and had a very good manager um, from the racing side, of course, for many years in Ken Gregory. But we did quite a lot of uh, interesting deals for him. One of my favourites was... We took him to the Bahamas for a sort of Bahamas Speed Week retro. Remember, he'd won the Bahamas uh, Speed Week. And this shows the professionalism of the man. He not only brought his diaries from when he was winning in the Bahamas in 1960, he had his diaries with him, and I had him reading to camera the, the bit of the diary. And he read a bit about um, going water skiing with Phil Hill and so on. And... Um, he said, oh, boy, he said, I've got I think I've got some footage of that. Two weeks later, footage turned up, VHS footage of him water skiing. It just shows his attention to detail. And of course, he was always very available to uh, to journalists and broadcasters and it helped push the brand. I think I love the story I saw. You know, there's been a lot of tributes. I love the story from the, the journalist and uh, and. Uh, Entrepreneur Mark Gallagher, you know, worked for Jordan for a while. Um, he, he took Sterling out to lunch to do an interview. And Sterling said, boy, how much are you being paid for this? And it, it was a good gig for Mark. So he told him, well, I don't know what it was, a thousand quid. He said, all right, well, you're paying for the wine then and I'm ordering it. And Sterling ordered a 200 quid bottle of wine, which is a, a Poligny Montrachet. It also happened to be Barry Sheen's favourite wine, strangely enough. Just also on the, on the dining side, one of the Sterling's things is, you, you've done this, John. You've gone out to dinner with 
say, a group of 10 people, and the bills come to, well, let's say for easy sums, the bills come to 300 quid and there's 10 of you. So you all throw, you throw your 30 quid in each, don't you? Or you put your credit card for 30 quid. Not sterling, he'd get the bill and he'd work out on a piece of paper how much everybody'd had. And then he said, yours was 89 pounds 30 and mine's 15 pounds 20, you know? <laughs> he, he was he was like that. What was he like away from the track? What sort of person was he? Because Sterling had a particular brand, as you said, a public persona. Did he fit that public persona, or was there another side to Sir Sterling? Well, firstly, he was a real gentleman. I've just been watching that you know, Formula One series, Drives to, to Survive. I don't know if you've seen it, John. Everybody's swearing all the time. I don't think I ever heard Ster- Sterling must swear. You know, he was a real gentleman. He went to a very top public school, Haleybury, of course, and he was a, he was a, a very much a public schoolboy, a bit different to the public schoolboy that James Hunt became. But um, So he was very proper and very correct. But obviously, you know, he's always going, he, he did love to chase the crumpet. He was married three times. There was quite a lot of other, other women in his life over the years as well, until, of course, Susie came along. She calmed him down, I think, in the end. He was very professional at the time. One, one thing we did with him was... Uh, road test of sort of things like, uh, I suppose, Vauxhall, Vauxhall Vivas and things like that with the sun. And this is how it worked, John. Car was delivered to our office. I had a journalist at work for me called John Thompson who'd, who'd ghosted these for Sterling. So he'd jump in this, whatever it be, Cortina, what it was, drive to the famous 46 Shepherd's uh, Market address. Sterling would come down. He'd get in the car. he said, well, this is where we're going, boy. And off they drove. And Sterling owned quite a lot of flats in South London. So they would go round number of flats which had problems so the 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 person renting it phoned sterling up and said oh the radiator's not working so he wouldn't get a maintenance man in he'd he'd, he'd go around and bleed the radiators change the light bulbs (laughs) fix the leaking toilets himself and and that was that's what he'd do on this road test and in between from one flat to another he'd dictate a bit more about what he thought of the car and then then uh, john would drive him back to to shepherd street he'd get out of the car We'd take the car back and uh, then John would uh, obviously write an article about, about whatever it was, uh, Austin Allegra or something horrible like that. And uh, it was just amazing that, you know, he was still still thinking about all these different flats. <laughs> He's an amazing character, but he, he, he was always very professional. I think you know, a gentleman is the best word for him, to be honest. Just some thoughts on how his career ended. Easter Monday, of course, at, yeah. at Goodwood, unlapping himself from, from, from Graham Hill, a very heavy impact, lucky to survive in those days. Made a decision, some said at the time, too early, that it was all done and dusted for him. In, in, the days, in those days, when drivers could go on late into their 30s and possibly even into their 40s, Sterling decided... After a test back at the same place, get back on the horse that that threw you, of course, typical Sir Sterling. Um, yeah. That 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 he his times were all right, but his concentration wasn't there, and that led to him stepping away. Of course, what hasn't been talked about so much is he was persuaded back into front wheel drive touring car, cars with Audi some yeah, years that, later. I, oh, I was right in the middle of that deal, John. That was um that was all funded by the Akai Hi-Fi company. And it was through Richard Lloyd and GTI Engineering the first year, and then Walkinshaw ran him the second year. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a good payday for him. Uh, Martin Brundle was his teammate the second year. I've forgotten who it was. I think it was Richard Lloyd himself the first year. Um, he enjoyed it, but um, 
he wasn't, you know, by that his age then, he wasn't going to be that quick. And the car wasn't that great either, to be honest. But he did go very well in a lot of historic cars quite late into his life, actually. Mm. It, I it, saw him drive, drive some Listers and Maseratis and things and still going very quickly and beating lots of people, you know, half his age. Mm. And, uh, and just to finish up with something very personal from you, he had a very human side didn't he? And and he if he if he worked with people and if he liked people, he remembered them and he f- formed uh, firm friendships with them. Absolutely. Well, just over twenty five years ago now, my first wife died, and he didn't phone me up or anything. And then at the funeral, he turned up on his on his little scooter, Susie on the back. This was up in uh, this is up in East Finchley, so he'd come all the way from Shepherd Street on this scooter. He turned up completely unannounced was there at the service, and then off he went. Um, but, it, you know, just he just wanted to be there to support me, and I thought, I mean, it it brought me to, t- obviously the whole thing brought me to tears, but, you know, it, it was it, it was a wonderful thing for him to do, and he didn't need to do it, you know. Well, that's a true measure of the man. Andrew Marriott, thank you very much indeed for sharing your remembrances of Sir Sterling Moss. Thank you so much, John. Let's move on to another member of our team now. Bruce Jones uh, joins us. Uh, it's often said, Bruce, that uh, statistics don't tell the full story of of a career in motor racing. Um, almost uh, a fifty percent win rate for Sir Sterling—that's uh, that's pretty strong stuff. But even at that point, that is only a fraction of the the measure of the man and the impact that he had on the sport. He wasn't called Mr. Motor Racing for nothing. Back in the 1950s, of course, you didn't just do the Grand Prix. You did whatever you could to earn prize money. And certainly Sterling's antennae were very, very tuned to that. So it meant multiple races at multiple meetings. And he might do the sports car race, the Formula One non-championship race, might even do a saloon car race if it could fit. And it's when you look at breadth of his career, he did speed record attempts as well. He did... You know, a lot of success in rallying. Everyone thinks of his sister as the rally driver in the family, but anything he could have a crack at. And again, he would pin it down. He'd be very loyal to manufacturers. He did have a a driver manager in in ex-racer Ken Gregory. So he was sort of ahead of his time in in, in ways. FMG thought, how can we really publicize our sports car range? Why not try and set up um, a speed record and who do you want in the car? You want Sterling. So Sterling would go over to Bonneville uh, and sit in a little EX181 streamline the car and go and do the business. Or he'd go down to Monaco in a Jaguar XK120 Coupe and try and set a record with three other co-drivers uh, for having an average speed over, get this, seven consecutive days and nights of 100 miles an hour. That's the sort of stuff he did. That was how he put money in the bank and uh, all the better for it. Well, as Andrew said, he did love a deal and he had a keen eye for, for business, both in and out of racing, subsequently to that Easter Monday accident. In some ways, and you talk about him being ahead of his time there, if you look at the Mealy Melia, 1955, almost a 1,000 miles on, on public roads uh, in the Mercedes, well, sitting alongside Sir Sterling for that was, was Dennis Jenkinson. And ahead of their time there because of the pace note system, which everybody knows about, but a a tremendous partnership between those two. Absolutely phenomenal. And not only was Jenks meticulous in preparing that sort of bog roll in a container that he wound around, but the thing about it, luckily I spent a fair bit of time with Jenks in his latter years, and a lot of the time of that time was spent talking about the Mila Melia, was he said there was a moment in particular where he suddenly thought, we're not slowing for this corner, and realised, looked across, and he could see, 
ultimate concentration. He suddenly said, we were hurtling to our demise, but I looked across and I was so wrapped in how Sterling was trying to get the speed off the car. I was just in massive admiration and they lived to tell the tale. They got around the corner only just, and in fact, they were overtaken by a car that was tucked in behind them. But he thought, how did you do that? And only afterwards he thought, "Hmm, maybe maybe I should have been slightly scared there. But when you're in the hands of the master, you have that trust. And uh, he most certainly did. The smooth driving style of Sir Sterling Moss was something that he was known for in period as well. He worked on it. He knew that there was a psychological advantage as well as a performance advantage to the paucity of movement behind the wheel. Because in those days when you saw close-ups of people driving, and if there was any onboard footage taken, drivers were sawing at the wheel. That, that wasn't Sterling's style. No, there were two drivers, um, both British, at uh, going through the mid-50s into the late 50s, who to me were the, the style masters, and it was Sterling Moss and Tony Brooks. They had an awful lot in common, this incredibly smooth style, which obviously was kinder on the car, kinder on the machinery, and in the longer races. Don't forget, some of the Grand Prix, like around the Nürburgring Nordschleife, were three and three-quarter hours, but I think even more impressive was three hours around the Pescara Grand Prix circuit in on the east coast of Italy. These were massive car-breaking events. So be kind to the car. Don't overstress it. Be fit. Nobody, No drivers back then, apart from Brooks and Moss, did any fitness work whatsoever. So alongside, they had driver who could match them for speed but might well break the car. That was Mike Hawthorne. They were... Ying and yang, if you will, in so many ways. But Sterling was always looking for that little margin that would buy him a second or two, keep him fit to the end of the race. And that is where he was one of the first professional racing drivers. He's, he was just a really interesting man. The thing I really loved about Sterling was I got to interview him at Goodwood so many times in so many cars. He'd come up at the top of the hill climb, most famously sitting in something like the W196 Mercedes that he drove with you know, such success, made his Grand Prix b- breakthrough in terms of winning in 1955 in one of those. But there was always a twinkle in his eye. But like all of the great, great racing drivers, total recall of every event he, he could imagine. And you could almost just feel he going, clicking back, I remember that test and we had it down at, you know, insert name of circuit here. And he'd have a story to tell. Super, super finely tuned racing brain going with all the level of preparation. No wonder he was so good. You think about a modern Formula One driver, we would love to see them do more events, be more cross-pollinated and show their talents. And that was always one of the things in the in the 60s and 70s and the 50s when Sterling was, was racing. It was great to see an incomer, see how they fared in a different championship, in a different sort of machine to the one they normally race. But you look at Sterling and some of the circuits he achieved on. He won three tourist trophies. So again, I mean, for a lot of people, and I, I'm included in this, I think he was... St- in sports cars and exceptionally good in single seaters but in sports cars three tourist trophy victories and i tell you what the one i would give my it for i'm selling them yet again uh would be to see him on the roads of ulster in the on the dundrod grand prix circuit for the tourist trophy because you either had earth banks or dry stone walls literally lining the entirety of the roofs and it was very very fast and there who's who no surprise who took victory in that? Sterling Moss. That was just, he could win in whatever he sat in. He was that good. He was that attuned to the machinery, the level of competition, and um, his success, not just in Formula One, but across sports cars, touring cars, saloons, as they were known, and in rallying, says it all. It really says it all, John. Favourite story of him, particularly having 
had so many dealings with them in his uh, latter years of his life when the, the competitive part of his driving was over at the grand old age of 81, which we'll talk about uh, with another one of our team in a moment. Favourite stories? Well, really, one thing that it goes right through him was his patriotism. And of course, he turned down drives. Ferrari spent the best part of a decade trying to get him to race their cars. But, you know, if he could possibly race something that was British, he would do that. In 1954, he bought a, a Maserati 250F because no British machinery was competitive, but he painted it British racing green. But on top of that admirable sportsmanship and the fact that he always did a, a deal with a handshake, didn't need a contract, different times, different days. Thank you, Bruce. Of course... Uh, by the time that Radio Le Mans and Radio Show Limited uh, was on the air, Sterling's racing career, or the uh, majority of it, was long behind him. However, for those at the Circuit de la South on a Thursday afternoon, the 9th of June in 2011, will never forget the moment that Sir Sterling, in his own uh, 718RS61 Porsche, pulled into the pit lane in the bright sunshine, at the end of qualifying for the Le Mans Legends race, which would be taking place on the Saturday. And waiting for him in the pit lane was our own Joe Bradley, uh, which was fortunate in so many ways, Joe. Uh, obviously a piece of uh, fantastic planning on your behalf. You know what? I'd like to take some credit for that, but but, but I can't really. Um, there was an element of luck, the luck being that, the fact that Sir Sterling's crew just happened to be at the right end of the pit lane where I was. But what I will say is, why wouldn't you want to talk to Sir Sterling Moss, who's just brought that car into the pits, off track at Le Mans? That's my job. And it was always going to be, and I was keeping a wary eye out for when Sir Sterling was going to bring that car in. It seemed like it was going to be a fairly standard in inverted commas, normal uh, pit lane interview with Sir Sterling. And it, it went very quickly from that normality into something very different. How quickly did you realise that you were going to be a part of history, Joe? Um, it, it took a little while, actually. It was a, it was a, no, I mean, you, you're always, he's great to talk to. Sir Sterling Moss is great to talk to. He's quite an easy interview, actually, because he's such a great talker. But it was a little while into the interview when it began to dawn on me what exactly he was saying. Because he, he gets out the car and he's not happy. And, and to be honest, most racing drivers aren't happy when they get out of a race car. They're, they've always got some kind of complaint. And so Sterling wasn't happy with the run he just had. And as we began to talk and speak, it became, it dawned on me, if you like, that what he was actually saying was, that was it. He wasn't going to get back into a race car competitively. Now, I think he's driven race cars since then. But what he was actually saying to me was, that's it. I'm, you know what? It's come to the point where I'm not going to get back into a, a car and race it. What was his, what was his demeanour like? What was his attitude? And, and the atmosphere in that pit lane, very evocative. Still cars streaming past to finish their uh, qualifying laps for the, for the Saturday Le Mans Legends race. What what was his face look like? Because he sounds in the interview very very determined. Yes, he he, he he was very firm in what he was saying, and I I actually I think I said you're not going to do a Frank Sinatra on us, and he was like there's such a positivity about Sterling Moss, and he, he speaks with such uh, a firmness about it and and delivers an opinion, and that's what came across to me, and that's what made me realise. 
this guy's not kidding here. This is a and it, and then I, then I thought to myself, this is a piece of history. This is Sir Sterling Moss stepping out of a race car for the final time. This is a piece of history, and and then it, then again it dawns on me in a, in a kind of selfish way. Oh my God, I, I'm the guy who he's announced his retirement to, and I kind of look to my left where. Uh, Sir Sterling's manager was Patrick Crew uh, was standing to our left, and Patrick's kind of looking as if to say, "Oh my goodness, I'm going to have to work on. I'm going to have to go to work now." Um, but there was definitely a firmness, a determination. I think in that session, while he was driving round, he was coming to a decision. I think while he was in that race car, he's he was making that decision, and his decision and his mind was made up as he pulled off that track. I think. He knew exactly that that was the last time he was going to pull off a racetrack in a competitive guise and drive a race car down a pit lane for the final time, stepping out of the car the final time. And there was no, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like he was going through a decision process as he was talking to me. Do you know what, Joe? I got, I, I got the, I got the strong sense that he wanted to tell somebody, and you know, in in some respects, you being there, you got that from him. Before he could change his mind, before any PR spin could be put on it, and it, it was almost—I want to get this out, and I want to get it out right now. Uh, yeah, it was before the spin doctors got a hold of it and sort of sanitised it. Yeah, most definitely, it was an honest, honest reaction when I asked him. So, how was that session? And then he starts to regale us with uh, how we'd found it out there and how we'd how we'd come to the decision of. Yeah, this is the last time I'm going to race a car. Let's hear now that snippet from the Radio Le Mans archive. 9th of June, Thursday afternoon, 2011. Joe Bradley and the late Sir Sterling Moss. Sir Sterling, how was that? Um, it's from my point of view, awful. I'm now 81 and I feel I should retire. I just feel now that... Uh, I just haven't got the courage to go quickly and, and, and therefore I'm not enjoying it and I, and I only race because I love it and I don't love it when I'm scared. But we, love, we, we absolutely adore and love and are, are all overwhelmed when we see you at the wheel of a car like this at a venue like this. Well, thank you. I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed too, but the other way. <laughs> you can lift off the throttle, you know. Yeah, I know. It isn't the case of that. Then you get in every other bugger's way. And I've always said, I know what a pain in the arse it is when people get in your way, you know, because they're not very quick. And I'm not going to be one of those. We're not, we're not talking about not uh, taking part in the race on Saturday, though, are we? No, no, I'm, no I shan't be. I'll get my, my co-driver will do both, both, uh, both segments. You're not, you're, so you're not going to get back in the car, is that what you're saying? No, yeah. This is official. You're not going to do a Frank Sinatra on us, are you? I can't, be, I can't have my mind changed. I, I race because I love racing. And I love racing if I'm not scared. And I'm getting scared too easily. I think it's wiser to, to retire when I'm doing as well as I have been, then go ahead and just be in every bugger's way. It's been an absolute privilege, sir, to be the person who interviewed you when you stepped out of the car for the last time. Thank you very much. And Sir Sterling Moss is not the only motorsport death uh, this week, sadly. John Horseman died aged 85 after suffering from heart and kidney complications. Born in Oldham, John attended Uppingham School before completing his national service in the Royal Air Force. He read mechanical sciences at Christ College, Cambridge, from where he graduated with honours in 1958. And it was at Cambridge that his interest in motorsport blossomed. On leaving Cambridge, he was offered a graduate apprenticeship with Aston Martin Legonda by its managing director, John Wire, which started a relationship 
of several decades with the legendary sports car team owner that was to shape much of his working life. Few can claim that their racing cars spanned the greatest decades in sports car competition, the 1960s and 70s, and extending into the 80s, fewer still were consistently successful, but John was one of those fortunate few. The blue and orange Golf-sponsored Ford GT40s, the Porsche 917s and Mirage prepped by the horse as he was known around the paddock, are among the most famous cars ever produced. His all-star driver lineup included Richard Atwood, Derek Bell, Mike Halewood, David Hobbs, James Hunt, Jackie Ix, Jackie Oliver, Brian Redman, Pedro Rodriguez and John Watson. In recent years, John was often invited to events celebrating the anniversaries of one or other of the victories of his teams, most recently in 2018 for Gulf's 50th anniversary celebrations at Le Mans, where he relished meeting old colleagues, whether drivers or team engineers. John was very specific about his role in motorsport. He didn't design, he developed. Designers designed the cars, he said. I made them better. He remained modest about his role and his achievements, even though to many in motorsport, he himself had acquired near legendary status. Thank you, Tim. And also Andrew, Marriott, Bruce Jones and Joe Bradley, who joined us for our tribute uh, for Sir Sterling Moss. A little bit more of a low-key opening to the show. And thank you for your support on Twitter uh, for that. Uh, Brody fondly remembering Sir Sterling after having a little sit in one of his old racing seats this morning. It wasn't a famous one, but nevertheless... Uh, He says, Kevin Payne listening live, hoping everyone and their families are staying safe. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Hello uh, to A110GE as well. Uh, We're all fine here. Thank you. Neil Gardner's uh, listening in, having completed a phenomenal sketch of Sir Sterling at Monaco. That that classic look with the side panels missing from the Lotus when he held off the might of Ferrari. Uh, that is great work again, and I love the nine, uh, the 9:35 as well that you did in Monochrome, Neil, uh, this week or last week now, isn't it? Stephen Gardner says, "Thank goodness I remember it's Wednesday. Two hours of racing chit chat, escapism, just what I need. I'll be done by working from home hours by then, so I can relax and listen live." Uh, hello to Scott Third Wheel Racing, to Kevin Poulton, and uh, not live tonight. Spring Harvest Week online. Christian Confidence uh, have a good show. I'll listen at the weekend. Uh, hello to Simon Kinzer, to Sir Dirty Uncle Kevin tuning in with a cigar for tonight's festivities. Uh, Alexander Orkin, glass or two of Temperillo washing down freshly cooked chicken, sweet potato and coconut curry with flatbreads. Oh, we had flatbreads tonight as well. Uh, Christopher Mattias says, I was looking forward to hearing the tributes for Sir Sterling Moss. Uh, on my way to work, I'm beginning my shift on pushing the shopping trolleys back inside the store. Chris, thanks for getting in touch. Uh, and uh, Neil, actually, uh, Neil Gardner has just said he's made a few tweaks to his Sterling Moss picture, and then he's going to be starting a drawing of Michael Schumacher starting his F1 debut at Spa, smuggling in a GNT there as well. Hello to Jonathan Main listening live. Uh, Eric Offerdahl, ready for another midweek motorsport. Beer in hand. Cheers to everybody. Rob Jenner listening while working on the MG uh, and everyone else uh, who knows us. Basically. Slow pass, no airfares. Really enjoying the Moss uh, tribute. Uh, so sad the team should open the show with the passing of a racing legend and English gentleman Sir Sterling Moss but as always you've done a wonderful job honouring his life and memory Dave Alcock that's very kind and a lot of you saying uh, sends chills 
down the spine to hear the audio again when Sir Sterling uh, retired live uh, on air. The picture for our uh, show tonight is a very special one. Uh, and uh, thanks to Jacob Ebury for allowing us to use it. It's actually Sir Sterling in the RS61 on his way back to the pits on that final lap. So taking just a few moments uh, before he uh, got out of the car and retired to Joe Bradley. Uh, Tim Gray is up in London and on a packed, Hello. And a, on a packed remainder of the show tonight tim we have what we have all the uh, remaining motorsport news <laughs> from the week right uh we will be joined by nick tandy oh right yeah or nick andy as you called him earlier that was a typing error mm. uh, iping error maybe a <laughs> <laughs> uh, big there. interview is with john doonan Excellent. And uh, our usual contributors, uh, Nick Damon, will be here. Oh, good. And Shay Adam will join us after a three-week gap. Yes, uh, and uh, don't forget, it's a big Thursday tomorrow because we've got two magazine shows and some live racing, and we've got live racing on Saturday. But more about that in just a moment. Where would you like to go next? Well, first of all... By the way, it's, it's, it's the 15th today, and it's season 15, episode 15. It is. Mm. Just thought I'd throw that in. I just thought we could actually play the news jingle at this point, couldn't we? You absolutely could play the news jingle at this point. So, shuffle. Obviously, there was only one big story to have. And as we said, we wanted to do a little more uh, locally and less frivolous start to the show. So, thank you for your uh, support on that. I'm keeping an eye on the Radio Show Listeners Connective on uh, Facebook as well as at Specutainment. However... Papers have been shuffled. Here's the news jingle. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. And I'm going to introduce uh, Nick Damon. Good evening, Nick. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, John. Good evening, everyone. And a special good evening to Garen Batten, who handed my bottom to me earlier in an iRace and said, Hey, uh, good day. Are you MWM, Nick? I went, Yes, I am. So give me a shout out. So I have. Okay. He's Australian, by the way. That wasn't just an excuse for the accent. I I was wondering if he was from Scotland or Sweden. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, Uh, absolutely. The reason we've got Nick on uh, is to talk about MotoGP. (laughs) (laughs) Can we kickstart Nick again for that? Did we not get a hooray for MotoGP? MotoGP? Moto hurrah. (laughs) <laughs> okay. MotoGP kicking things off then. So, uh, MotoGP's been investigating some ways of uh, cost-cutting. Right. Yes, they have. Uh, uh, which ones you particularly talk about? Because one of them, was it Avantia, uh, said they were down to their last 50p, didn't they? Yes. We'll come on to that in a moment. Uh, oh, sorry, am I preempting again? I do apologise. Well, no, I think this is, this is the uh, better one. Uh, Ducati came up with a great idea to save money, uh, which is to when the season starts, uh, allow each rider to only have one bike rather than two or three. Uh, And it was such a good idea that every other manufacturer has said absolutely not. (laughs) So they're clearly not wanting to save money too much. Well, it's more likely that uh, they must have felt that would be an advantage to Ducati for some reason. It's more, no, 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 that's not, that's not going to happen at all. So, uh, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I, I don't see why that would be, would be a problem. I'm sure they'd be allowed a spare bike if they wrote it off, but no, I don't know. Uh, they've also said that once they are allowed to start racing, they will not do any double-header uh, two-race weekends. 
yeah, I think they're going to be in trouble, though, given the, the news today, um, because they have a much more European-centric season than than, than F1. Um, so, yes. Carmelo Espeleta uh, said, the promoters are already quite stressed and will not pay for having two races, uh, and the TV broadcasters won't either. So there we go. Mm. Won't they? I think the TV broadcasters have already paid for the 20 they're supposed to be. So, you know, how they're delivered is something different entirely. Mm. They've already committed to paying for 20. They haven't. The payments will come in instalments, of course, won't they? Yes. Will they? Yes. Okay. That's how TV rights generally work. They're often front-loaded so that you pay more at the start of the contract than you do at the end. Except in Formula One, which has uh, got an accelerator on uh, it, so it rises every year. Yes. Uh, what that's, is... a, is that a throw, that's a throwback to the Bernie days, isn't it, Nick? Oh, yeah. Yes, the, the 10% additional thing. I, I, think, I think it may have gone down from 10%, but, uh, yeah, that's the thing that's, that, that eventually cripples all the all the hosting countries and all the hosting tracks. <gasps> oh, hello. Oof. Which one was that? That was Flo. Hello, Flo. There won't be any more pre-season MotoGP testing, according to Suzuki, because there won't be time. What? What? This season? Next season? This whenever? Season, yeah. Well, no, because they won't, they'll have to get if and when they get a chance to get going. They'll, be they'll have to get track. going. Yeah, absolutely. But right. Where that track's going to be? Who the heck knows? And of course, the reason we're talking about that is the uh, certainly within Europe, which Nick's comment earlier is uh, if you. Uh, didn't pick this up earlier on, and it has recently broken, that mass gatherings and sporting events in Belgium and Germany, if uh, I remember correctly, let me just head back to the alert that That I had now. Thank you, yes. Um, That they uh, will have no big events until September. Um, That is going to have a knock-on effect with everything. Uh, and the Tour de France has already said that they were going to move today. That's finally moved back, and that's going to clash with Le Mans. In... They're going to August 29th until September the 20th. Yes, which means uh, that will be they'll be heading into Paris up the Champs Elysees as the French Mans... Open gets underway and Le Mans finishes. Yes. Mm. Well, Le Mans a long way for from Paris. Yes, I've, I have a feeling there may not be enough television equipment in France to do everything that needs to be doing that Sunday. Uh, I'm sure there will. Mm. Uh, so that has put the kibosh on quite a lot of uh, events, sporting events. SRO have already decided that uh, uh, they're going to look for another uh, time for Spa 24 and there will be, as I say, uh, a knock on effect. Listen to Midweek Motorsport Series 15, Episode 15 on the 15th. Nick Damon is with us. We're talking uh, bikes at the moment. Are we staying with bikes, Tim? We are, because as Nick mentioned earlier, some of the teams are quite low on cash. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> Not the only ones, to, eh? <laughs> Dawn has decided to help them out uh, by sharing more than 9 million euro between all the independent MotoGP teams and the Moto2 teams and the Moto3 teams. Mm. Right. There's not much each, though, is it? Well, there's not that many teams. They're getting hundreds of thousands each. Are they? What, 9 million? I suppose it might be, yeah. Probably, what, 20... Yeah, about 30 teams. Yeah, I mean, I mean obviously anything is, is good to keep them ticking over, but, of course, these, these teams you know, make money as they roll. The season should be several races underway. We, we, we now know that it's very unlikely we're going to see anything... 
um, in MotoGP, and at least until September. I don't think they leave Europe until that until around that time. Um, so yes, it's going. I mean, if if for some miraculous reason we do see a a uh, hopefully we do a a, a continent wide clearing up of general coronavirus, it's going to be the most unbelievably packed September and October. Mm. Uh, and early November before it gets too cold. Portimao's going have 11 races a week. Yeah. yeah. Remember we reported, was that last week report yeah, that Portimao right have upped their their circuit license back to a, a full grade one? Uh, yeah, the interesting thing is it looks like MotoGP's imperative is different from F1's in that they aren't prepared to stick on um, but not behind, uh, you know, behind closed doors events. Obviously their TV money is not anything like as great as f1s and therefore they still need the promoter fee and the and the and the, and the bums on seats so that behind closed doors thing which does of course um mean that f1 could race in europe you know from from the beginning of august probably it's not yeah if you say a mass gathering if they can convince a mass gathering is less than the three four four hundred people who would need to run an f1 gp at paul ricard they might be all right I so just can't say it. Let's uh, let's move on to how this money's being divided up. Okay. Okay. So you mentioned one for you, one for me. Avintia earlier, <laughs> Nick. Yeah. Uh, they're so getting all of it. They're one of the six independent teams, along mm-hmm. with uh, Petronas SRT Yamaha, Promac Ducati, Tech Three KTM, and Grassini Aprilia. Right. Uh, and each one of those is getting two hundred and fifty thousand euro per month until wow. June. Oh well, keep it all from the door, isn't it? So that is where half of Dorna's money will go. The other half is split between Moto2 and Moto3 teams. Um, Basically, the amount each team gets depends on how many full-season riders they had entered, and it's basically €25,000 per rider. Well, yeah, anything will help at the moment with the problems they're all going to be in. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. Well done, done, Dorna. No, I think that's a really good initiative. Uh, I think that's the first we've heard from a series actually giving money back. A lot of deferred deferred payments or uh, allowed entry fees to carry forward, etc. But I think, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong on Atspectatainment on Twitter, uh, Nick, I I haven't heard of any other major world series doing that. No, I think there's, there's, a, there's a possibility of advances in some of the others, but that's the first people actually sat down and said, this is what we're going to do, who we're going to do it for, and um, that's very good. Mm. Moving on. Uh, I don't think there's any other bike news. Does that mean we move to? Formula E. Oh. E, by gum. <laughs> Common theme here. Formula E uh, teams have agreed on some cost-cutting measures. Really? Yes. Are they? Uh, are they? Uh, I've heard about this. But they're only going to charge at night and use economy seven electricity. Is that excellent right? Excellent idea. <laughs> that is an excellent idea. Uh, we should all be doing that with our electric cars. Yes. Uh, it saves so much money. Get your electric car now before there's none left. Yes. There won't be any more after this shutdown. I tell you. Uh, oh gosh. And unlike MotoGP, uh, the Formula E teams have unanimously agreed to accept these proposals. Ah, right. Which is right. good of them. Uh, so they've postponed uh, the launch of the Gen 2 Evo car until 21-22. That was just a, a bodywork update, wasn't it? Yes. So um, the current cars remain homologated um, and they are allowed to make one update to their powertrain over the next two years. 
Right. Instead of two, probably. Yes, uh, maybe four. Maybe they're allowed two a year. Right. Okay. Um. So that will obviously reduce spending in on development by quite a lot. Mm. Uh. And that's pretty much how they're uh, doing their cost cutting. Yeah, they're they course they 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 are most of the way through their season. It now looks very unlikely they're going to get anything else away because two of their major events to come are the London E-Prix at a venue that's currently a hospital that they have said they want to push. They may, may, may move to Donington or Brands for that with some extra chicanes put in. And, of course, New York, which is the epicentre of the problems in the States. So, um, obviously, it's not a world championship yet, so they could call the championship done now and, and award prizes. Uh, it becomes a world championship next year with, with the tighter... Uh, rules that implies yes but remember what Gerard DeVore said on the show last week about how flexible uh, the FIA are being in terms of listen these are uh, exceptional circumstances force majeure as I'm sure they probably said um, and therefore what is or isn't a world championship really doesn't matter right now in terms of what it says in the regulations what matters is that, you know, when we get back to racing, we get back to racing with as many people as we can. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I think, yeah, those things were all very great. But, yeah, I mean, it's um, with the kind of, the, yeah, it, it, it does now seem like the, the, the European season is pretty much wiped out if you're not prepared to go behind closed doors. Mm. Um, so let's see who decides to do what. Uh, a quick note on this. Uh, from Phil Anson, who's listening in from Dubai. Fabulous, Phil. Hello, Hello. Phil. Hello, mate. How are you doing? He says, talking about Moto uh, GP and F1 finances, what about the circuits? How many of them are close to going broke? It's a fair point, Nick, isn't well, it? Well, Cota's gone already, hasn't it? Has it? Cota's laid everyone up and is really, really unhappy. Well, whinging a lot about everything. They've, they've, they've shut, they, they, they shut up shop and, and fired everyone off. I'm not sure they fired them or furloughed them. I must have been, sure. It was so early. Which I think it was before the furloughing was out. They, they really ran out of cash early. Um the problem with motor circuits, as we know, is that they, they are built on models where they, they need to operate with a track day or a test day or, a, you know, some corporate stuff six days a week to, to survive. Correct. Um, they all, in, in Europe, I think, will, will get a little bit of support as a, as, a, as, as a business. Nothing to do with the fact they hold Grand Prix because that's not where they make their money. Um, but it would obviously be, be, you know, when they, they'll effectively lose an entire summer. You know, I'm sure that, you know, in the UK, Jonathan Palmer and and, and his his bunch are, are well sorted, and uh, yeah, and I'm sure they've got that he's the sort of guy who'll be able to, to weather the storm. But some of the other tracks around, which are already on slightly dodgy grounds, a lot of those, a lot of the Spanish tracks that got built in the huge boom um, 10, 15 years ago have been quite marginal. Even though they're lovely, lovely tracks, they have been quite marginal from 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 you know when that the things came back, went back downhill again after 2008. So there are, you know, That's there right. are. There are a lot of things on the edge. I mean, I'm, I, I, get, I hate to be British and parochial, but, 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 but I'm sure it's happening in whichever country you're in. We're losing, we're losing high street shops the whole time because they were that close, and this is the thing that's pushed them over. This coronavirus is going to be a bit like the meteor that killed the dinosaurs. It's mm. going to wipe out a large amount of businesses who can't adapt and survive, mm. and 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 it's very sad. Um, um, for those, but but what will come from the ashes will be a, will be a stronger base, and that base will be you know able to to weather more storms. And sports federations are very much among those businesses. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. 
sticking ball sports, motorsports, uh, everybody is gonna is gonna have a rough time, um, and, and until and unless a vaccine is uh, unless and until I should say an, uh, a a vaccine that is uh, readily available, readily available uh, and cheap to the point of being nearly free uh, and global, then. We, there will be an element, I believe. This well, is there will be no spectators exactly. until there is a global vaccine. Exactly. exactly. I completely agree with that, Tim. Uh, that, this is only my personal opinion, uh, um, of course. Um, but I, I cannot see the harder edge of what's been called social distancing disappearing um, within the next 8 to 18 months. And I, I wish I, I wish to... I could disagree with you. I really wish I could disagree with you, John. Very good uh, article on the Sports Illustrated website, ah, um, which is mainly about uh, the NBA and their yes. crazy plan to play the entire season in Vegas. Yeah, in in one venue. And why it won't work? Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, there is the same plan to try and get the Premier League away um, at four uh, grounds. At four grounds. But yeah. one of them which is St George's, St George's Park, which is just the, tra- the England training ground. Which yeah. doesn't work for the television companies because there's no cables already laid there. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, who knows? Don't you who believe knows? it? Ah, okay. Uh, says, that, says the man from telly. Anyway, uh, let, let's move on to more solid solid ground. What do we... Th- these are all un- positive un- news ponderables. Here. Yes, some, positive, yes. Yes, come on. Uh, Amina Mohammed. Yes. Uh, is the uh, sports minister of Kenya. Yeah. Okay. And insists that the seventh round of the World Rally Championship will go on as scheduled on July the sixteenth and nineteenth. Is this the um, the locusts have gone? The locusts have gone. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, there was uncertainty over uh, the event, not just because of locusts, but also coronavirus. Uh, but speaking uh, to uh, local radio. Uh, Amina confirmed that the rally has not been postponed. The WRC Kenya Safari Rally remains a scheduled event in the seventh round of the FIA and World Rally Championship calendar yeah. uh, and continues to be slated for the 16th to 19th July 2020. Any news about the Rwandan Gorillas in the Mist Rally? We'll come on yes. to that later. <laughs> Ah. Of course, there are challenges experienced by all international and local sporting events in the world. Uh, it's worth noting that the government of Kenya, through the Ministry of Sports, Culture and Heritage, is partnering with the Kenya Motorsports Federation, FIA and WRC promoters, to deliver the WRC back in Kenya and Africa after 18 years. This being the case, all stakeholders continue to monitor the situation and will issue another statement in the coming weeks. Can we, can we nip quickly back to Formula One? What do you mean back to Formula 1? We haven't gone to Formula 1 yet. Oh, yeah, that's right. No, we haven't, have we? That's th- that's right. Okay, when are we going to Formula 1? Do you want to go to Formula 1 now? Just so that Nick can say... Hooray! Oh, I like the big finish that time. You're keeping it fresh, you. mate. That's good. Like oh, it. yes. I've got a few seconds. <laughs> uh, Formula 1 news then. Tim. Yes. Do you want me to start this one, or will you? Well, there are some great Formula 1 stories this week. Okay. Oh, God. Uh, Nine minutes. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to skip over. Christian Horner's wife suffers uh, cooking fail. Jerry right. Horner. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Shall we talk about money in Formula 1? Money. 
money. Let's All right, talk about then. the money. I need to leave money to my son. He's not born yet. I'm 112, but there we go. <laughs> Thank you, Bernard Charles. Uh, uh, do you know who Greg Maffei is? Oh, I feel I should. No. He's the president of Liberty Media. Yes. Oh, yes. On $44 million a year. Yes. Well, that was last year. What's it going oh, to be this thing. year? £9.70. $55 million a year. That's a badge. Uh, they uh, they have doubled his uh, salary. Oh, doubled it! <laughs> Blimey, well, that's all right. I was, I was worried. I, see, I, there was me worried that uh, he was going to struggle. Uh, CBC partners were, were, were milking the system, but they, yeah, that's fine. That's all right. <laughs> uh, this is uh, based on the uh, financial results for 2019. Right. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, when the 2020 financial results come out, which uh, will be uh, spring, get million. spring next year. <laughs> He'll have to justify uh, that he's really worth uh, that amount of money. Well, there's nothing he could have done to have made any difference. So, you, if you were if you were doing his personnel uh, evaluation, you would say hmm, he had an all right year. Might as well leave him on the salaries he's on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't think. I don't think predicting and avoiding a global pandemic was one of his KPIs. No. <laughs> indeed not. It should be everyone's. <laughs> it should be everyone's. <laughs> well, Wimbledon did, so good luck to the world well for them. Yes. They have, they, now, you see, and what Nick's talking about that dear listener, is that the All England Club, uh, All England Croquet and Tennis Club. Uh, no, Lawn Tennis. Lawn Tennis, yes, and Croquet Club. Uh, they have been paying pandemic insurance for, is it, was it the last eight years? 17 years. years. Eight, oh, 18 years. Yeah, this yeah. is the 18th year, 17 wow. years before this. Well, there you go. Uh, and the payout that they're going to get is about six times the premiums they've paid over 18 years. £141 million they're getting. That uh, I suspect that their premium will go up next year, um, <laughs> as will anybody else who, I who wants it. they're still better off. Anyway, move, moving on. So, big pay increases for Liberty Media. What else on the money front? Uh, let's talk about William, shall we? Oh, oh Okay. There's, there's no. been there's been a story emerging about Williams in the last week. But some uh, of it's old news, isn't it? Which, which is actually possibly as much as five months old. Uh, Tell us well, more, Nick. Yes. Well, Williams um, have are in financial difficulty um, based on the fact they mainly they were, they've been rubbish. They were back of the grid Formula One team. Yeah, yes. and they um, so they actually they they they've done what any uh, far thinking organisation does. Um, Not yes. my surprised face. They don't want any uh, far-thinking organisation done, and they've sold off all their assets. Well, they've mortgaged all their assets. They sold some. There's Williams uh, Advanced Engineering Division, which they sold. Um, and what did they do? All the clever things. Um, the, the 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 bits which with McLaren have been so careful to make sure they kept part of their uh, um, their main corporation. The profitable bits. What do you mean? Yeah, I think Advanced Engineering did Advanced Engineering supply the batteries and that sort of thing yeah. formula e and that's they did, yeah, yes. they've done all those sort of stuff so they do all the clever things whereas and they've that's been sold off mclaren have, have, are, are literally the last thing they do is sell off that part or the road car that's makes that is a money source in good times and bad but so we've just sold that off um or a large percentage of that and now, now what they've done because they've got some money is they've refinanced everything else and they've mortgaged everything they can think of to raise more money so they've mortgaged the land the buildings the factory plant the machinery they've also mortgaged all the heritage cars as well mm-hmm. so they and they have they have mortgaged that to a consortium that includes hsbc that's a well-known bank mm-hmm. and um a loan from latrus racing 
Never heard of them. They're a company owned by a man called Michael Latifi. Now, is that mm. surname ring any bells? That's right, Father that, Williams uh, driver, Nicholas yeah. Latifi, yeah. So they are now mortgaged up to the hilt, um, To which is obviously, this is not for investment, this is to keep things going. Um, and, yeah, unless they can they can turn around, obviously they can cut their cloth and everything else, but they, they, they just can turn things around and start getting more, more money. The question is, how do you pay that back? And is it actually, as many people have speculated over the past few weeks, just a precursor, to Mr. Latifi buying into the organisation, which obviously the Williams family have, have, have resisted it, for so long, but realistically... He has got a 17% share holding, hasn't he? Which he paid quite a lot of money for. Yeah, because Williams lists in the German stock exchange for some reason. I'm, I'm, I'm not... They're listed, I don't know why they're listed in Germany. There must be a reason for it. I think it dates it. back to when BMW was ah. uh, a part shareholder. Right. Ah. So, yeah, he has he has amassed a, a cut, um, but it's, you know, it's... It's a difficult situation. How much and money do we think they got out of the mortgage? Don't know. Don't know. Fifty million from selling at Williams Advanced Engineering. Don't know about the mortgage. Not sure what they what they're leveraging this cash for. Um, don't know whether it is to pay debts. Not. It's a really weird one. Um, to but they have effectively yep mortgaged what they have and and there's no. Wow. It's it's to, to increase liquidity. It's not to do anything. So. I don't know. Is the answer. I mean, I'm not a high financer, but I'm sure someone can explain it better. But it just it, it's the kind of thing you do, um, and then you, you kind of once this is spent, you're out of options. So you know, especially in this current situation where they're not going to get the money they thought they're going to get, uh, things not looking particularly good. But you know, let's be really honest about this. Um, if Force India can find a buyer, Williams certainly can if it comes to that. But that would be the end of, of you know, Frank's control. Got time for one more story? We have, and this is uh, news about where the Formula One season will start. Probably. Uh, that may be out of date already, but no, go on. Well, it's no, not. Go on, then. go on, Tim. What do you think? Uh, I think it will be at the Red Bull Ring. What, behind closed doors? Because I know Austria said they were happy to have behind closed doors the events, didn't Austrian they? Austrian government has ah. said the Red Bull Ring can host a Formula One race on its scheduled date of July the 3rd to the 5th, if it proves it can do so within the confines of existing coronavirus restrictions in Austria. Do we know what they are? Uh, they stand a couple pre- of metres apart. It's 500 people and a couple of metres apart, isn't it? Austria went pretty pretty heavy quite early on. Um, and I think they're, they're pretty much social distance. And they're just beginning, they're, like um, a couple of other countries, just beginning to, to ease a couple of things back. Um, How do you I, get there? My, a serious question, but fly how do you Vienna, get there? Flying to Vienna, get a car, with drive who? down. From where? This is Formula One. They have a fleet of planes that begin pl- here. That isn't an issue. The flying bit's not an issue. The trucks, um, if you can get them out of Italy, question A. I mean, I know it's eight weeks, ten weeks away, sorry. Um, you know, if, I suppose, if, if Red Bull Ring, which let's be honest, in a, as the name would suggest, is probably well financed, uh, is prepared to do it, um, then it would happen. It could happen, yeah. And then it's after not that, not in you, a particularly built-up area. Lovely air there. You wouldn't be worried about the air, that's for sure. <laughs> no, I mean it's very empty. I mean, there's no. I mean, I assume that the, the hotels would be prepared to take them as well because you'd have a, a density there. The hotels. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's possible behind closed doors. There is possible behind closed doors at Recall is possible. Um, I yeah, don't think French government's doors, less keen on having mm, a race. I don't think behind closed doors at Silverstone is possible because um, just for the mere fact that uh, Silverstone would need 
doesn't have that independent finance which Red Bull have, so they'd need to get it, do it a dry hire. But let's see how how desperate they get. Okay. By they, I mean F1. How close to being finished is a Silverstone Hotel? Nowhere. No. It's got walls. Not this year. No. No. Yes, it's got walls. Uh, a fleet of motorhomes. Nah, it's not happening. That, nobody's uh, going to let them in. This country's not going to be open for business by then. So nobody's going to be allowed to come in from anywhere in Europe. Well, Spain, are already, Spain are already saying that despite the fact that they're going to open their internal air routes probably end of July, beginning of August, so that everybody on Spain can go on holiday. And, not, and I, I'm, I'm being absolutely serious. I'm not being sarcastic there because they understand how important it is for certain places in Spain to have a holiday trade. Um, they've already said that it is, that it is unlikely... Uh, in the extreme, that they will let any anybody from elsewhere in Europe, and particularly not the UK, fly in. So, uh, you listen to me. <laughs> hey, who knows? Uh, one final thing on this: uh, yeah, presumably, anyone going to the Austrian Grand Prix will have to be there for fourteen days before it starts. Mm. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport. It's Series 15, Episode 15, on the 15th of April. It's a big Thursday uh, tomorrow night. We'll give you some details of what's on the Torah radio show in the next hour. But first, here's Creelsey to tell you what's on the grid this week. This week on the grid, an interesting show as we chat to Supercars media boss Nathan Prendergast who explains the challenges faced in putting together a proper broadcast for a virtual race. We're then joined by Aussie TV legend Glenn Ridge. He's got a new show coming up soon called Garage 41. We talk his love of Target Tasmania. Then we break down the good, bad and ugly of the first Supercars E-Series round, touch on the latest news from this part of the world and talk one of the Aussie legends of motorsport, Norm Beachy. It's a bumper episode, 9pm UK time, Thursday night, only on RS1. Oh, sorry, you caught me off guard there. It's Midweek Motorsport, and here's what's coming up. In the second half of tonight's programme, we welcome back Cher Adam. Yes, the Gearbox Girl is back after uh, a few weeks away from the microphone, although I have to say she's still been contributing not only to this show, but also to some of our live shows as well, with some help behind the scenes. And we'll be talking about live racing this week, as JTR boss and Porsche Works racer Nick Tandy will be on the phone uh, and thanks to a couple of tweets, we'll be asking him about models as well. No, get your mind out of the gutter. I'm talking scale transport. That's all to come in the second half of tonight's programmes. More of your tweet uh, plays on Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com. Our big interview on Midweek Motorsport this week. We welcome back, he's no stranger to this sport, the man at the head of IMSA, John Doonan, uh, on the line. Good evening, John. It's so great to hear your voice, John. Good evening to you. Oh, brilliant to hear you as well. First and foremost, John, before we get into the business side of things, how's you, your immediate family, and the broader IMSA family holding up under these difficult conditions? Well, Keyword difficult uh, conditions, but to be honest with you, uh, the attitude and the enthusiasm 
uh, among the team on the IMSA side is really great. Uh, everyone's staying healthy, uh, knock wood. And, uh, you know, from a family standpoint, uh, I've been in, in what I'm fondly referring to as IMSA North for a few weeks, uh, taking care of uh, family and watching over my, my, my parents and, and uh, my, my aunt. And so uh, making sure everybody's got groceries and, and that type of thing. But uh, anxious to get back to, to Daytona, which I'm going to try to do here in the next uh, handful of days, get back in the office. But uh, everyone's healthy, number one. And uh, the enthusiasm is is, is at, an, at a high right now, to be honest with you. I think for us racing people, uh, particularly involved in major series like IMSA, WEC, Formula One, NASCAR, etc., uh, this change of pace, um, I think we've got almost look on it, on it as a as a bit of a blessing in some respects from the normal flat-out season. There's so little downtime in the close season. Is there a close season? I think we've almost got to look on this as a, as a bit of a benefit at the moment. All right, it, it's, I'm, I'm not trying to play down any of this, John, but, you know, glass half full. Totally. And the, the thing I said to the team uh, the other day internally is it's going to be a busy fall. So, <laughs> you know, stock, stock, up, stock up on rest as best you can. And the other way I've tried to frame it up um, in, in any of the topics we're going to discuss today is progress with sensitivity. Yeah. I think we all want to get back to uh, making noise. We all want to get back to the racetrack. I can't wait to give you uh, one of those big bear hugs that we always have, but <laughs> you know, we, we have to, we have to be sensitive, but at the same time, uh, nobody is, is letting off the gas to try to be prepared for that. Um, to use this time to brainstorm about how we can uh, be more efficient in, in normal times and also come up with ideas to create more value for partners. And there's been a lot of uh, opportunities to do that in just new and, and unique ways. Anybody who's a, an IMSA partner, John, will have noticed that on all the latest IMSA communication, there's a new footer that's come out, which is the, the most important race, hashtag human race and for everything we're going to talk about the overriding part of this is when it's safe when we can do this when it's the right time to do it we'd all like to be racing tomorrow but we'd only like to be doing that in the right circumstances you brought that up and it just gave me chills on my arms uh and that's a credit to ed bennett um and and our team to to come up with that and what a great way to frame it up. Um, what we do, our passion, being at the racetrack, uh, celebrating amazing performances, the talents of our drivers, our crews, uh, the involvement of all the OEM partners and folks like WeatherTech and Michelin. Uh, that's what we love. Uh, but we all also uh, in our racing community are a big family. And uh, that was the best way to frame it up is, uh, yep, we'd love to go racing, but there are more important priorities right now. Uh, uh, w- there is some positivity here, and that's one of the reasons that we wanted to get you back on Midweek Motorsport. That we do have some racing this week, and, I, and I, I'll leave that to the end because I, I'm really excited about that. Uh, that's the uh, the next iRacing event, which is tomorrow evening, and we'll have it live, of course, uh, here across the Radio Show Limited Network and, and IMSA Radio in Sound and Vision, and we're going to add some live timing to that. We'll talk about that in more detail in a moment. Let, let's stay in the real world for the moment uh, and by all means John if any of these questions I, I get on dodgy ground I know you'll let me know but the questions 
that we are going to be asking for a little while, I wonder, I think now, is is what is IMSA doing at the moment? What is it working with, with the, the manufacturers, the OEMs, with the, the stakeholders and the other partners? What What is what is the work plan that's going on at the moment? Yeah, so if you break it into two segments, and that's a great question, if you break it into two segments, so the, the marketing communication side of the house and the competition side of the house, um, I've been fortunate, uh, and we all have with these new technologies over Skype and Zoom and whatever platform people are using, uh, to be together and to see everybody's faces. But the brainstorming uh, among the marketing communications team has been immense. Um, looking at ways to engage our younger fans. And it sounds simple, but coloring contests for uh, liveries on, on the WeatherTech Ferrari or the Gear Lamborghini or LMP2 cars or Lexus came out with a beautiful coloring book for kids. You know, what better ways to engage with our, our, our up-and-coming audience? Um, you know, a, a really beautiful piece on Cadillac uh, recently, and we're focusing on the cars of the stars and coming up with, with features on each of the, the OEMs that are participants. You know, it's it's car care time, and WeatherTech, of course, has a great line of car care products, so we've been featuring uh, their story. Um, our friends at Motul, and we'll talk about iRacing, they've jumped on board uh, with the iRacing event this week. Uh, you know, new partner Haggerty uh, is part of uh, your show and, and your broadcast booth, and, and they're engaged, and they've been providing great content on you know road cars and making that relevant tie uh, to what we do at the racetrack. Certainly Michelin, um, we're, we're featuring uh, so much of, of their story as well at this time. So uh, big-time content calendar, constantly evolving, new things come up. Uh, we, we have a great feature on the website right now about how much BMW, a critical partner, just won their second Rolex 24 in a row, has engaged with uh, eSports, and back in December, Jens Marcourt came to visit in, in, in Daytona. We had a great meeting. Uh, we'd love having partners visit or vice versa, visiting them. And just in that meeting, in a random conversation, Jens said, you know, guys, I didn't think much about this eSports thing until I saw a race. This is in December. No discussion of what we're facing now as a, as a culture. And I sent Jens a note this morning with that link uh, to the article about how much BMW has engaged and taken this iRacing opportunity in esports seriously. So it's things like that that are really taking up everyone's time. The enthusiasm is great. On the competition side, Simon Hodgson and the gang have been really heavily focused on LMDH. I know we'll talk about that in a bit. But also the, the folks have stepped back. The team has stepped back and looked at how we do things from a BOP standpoint, uh, how, oh, wow. we, how we operate um, at the events. Um, and, you know, to, to, to the credit of the competition department, the first iRacing event at Super Sebring, they went back and looked at uh, the BOP in that iRacing event. Of course Found they did. Silly. But they did, and they looked at how it matches up to what we face when we're, we're at the track in, in a, a reality situation. Another funny one, and I'll leave it with this, is Jeff Braun. Uh, obviously, Colin and, and Jeff, big uh, participants and much success in IMSA over the years. Jeff reached out about uh, pit strategies, uh, fuel uh, stops and fuel stint lengths uh, for the iRacing event <laughs> because he's calling strategy and spotting 
uh, for Colin in the race on, uh, tomorrow night. So it just um, it warms my heart, um, which, again, um, very sensitive to what the world is facing. But when you hear it like that, um, it, it warms your heart that everyone is, is staying enthusiastic and anxious to get back to normal. If I've learned anything down the years, which many people will say I probably haven't, John, to be honest. But if I have learned anything, it, that, that it, it is that races are races. We cover skill, uh, RC, remote control championships. We cover real world championships. We cover uh, online championship. And it doesn't matter what the platform is. And in the case of, of online, that's in the virtual world. But the competition and the desire to win and the skill levels, they are absolutely real and are standard across all of those. That's the thing that pulls all of these together. You mentioned LMDH. Uh, We had uh, Gerard Naveau, your opposite number at the WEC, on the show uh, last week uh, on the the telephone. Uh, uh, He said everything was going on uh, and that there was still this... In some ways, this this time that you've been granted, and again, let's let's kind of look at this in a positive sense. I know we were supposed to have had a set of uh, more fulsome regulations at, at Sebring, which is almost a month ago now. But in some ways, the imperative has been taken away. So, a little bit more work being done on that by by both sides. In that, John, uh, can you give us any news? And I, I smile when I say this. It was breakfast with Gerard yesterday on the phone and I'll 6:40 a.m. my time uh, you know afternoon his time but the the pipeline of communication has been um, fantastic and ongoing and um, really really proud of where we are with uh, communication with Pierre Gerard Terry Bovet on the technical side Ed Bennett Simon myself uh, Mr. France we've, we've been in ongoing communications about the right thing to do at the right time and I yeah. think this is where that progress with sensitivity plays in. Um, the technical teams have been meeting on a daily basis. Daily, they have calls um, trying to refine uh, the draft regulations. We were certainly ready um, on that Friday of Sebring, but it gives us a window here to refine them even more. Right. They're on the phone with the four approved constructors, Multimatic, Delara, Orica, Liget, refining aero uh, details. The regulations are... Um, in really good shape. Um, I think that progress also has been met with sensitivity. Ongoing communication with the OEMs, making sure that, you know, we don't don't need a big news release on these regs. We all want to be sensitive to uh, what's going on around us. But in communication with the OEMs, there are several of them that have engineering staffs all working from home, trying to make progress, trying to get to a place that when things are, quote, back to normal, um, we can try to move it forward. So I think, um, you know, the sensitivity is we'd love to get the draft regulations into the hands of the OEMs at the right time, knowing that, that they're all, all their core businesses are facing some challenges. But um, I'm really excited and proud about the relationship, uh, perhaps better than ever right now, in the way that we've been openly discussing this and uh, finding convergence like we talked about at Daytona. Uh, in refining the regulations, of course, there's a nice little balancing act that has to be done there. It's like having a really great menu in your hand. Sometimes the more time that you've got, the less easy it is to, to make a, a decision. There has to be a point, John, where somebody in the technical departments of both the ACO and IMSA goes, right, OK, that's it. Let's stop it now. I don't, we don't, <laughs> because otherwise, when do you stop? 
Yeah, you're right. And uh, I think we're really, really close to that. Um, obviously, uh, there's been a long process uh, kicked off by you know, Simon Hodgson, Matt Kurdock on our side relative to uh, a hybrid supply, um, a single source supplier. Uh, we obviously have a battery supplier. We've got other components of the car. And so I think that's sort of the, the little bit of uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's yes. um, to make sure that we're in a good shape there before we get them, uh, the regulations into the hands of, of the, uh, the OEM partners. But um, I, I give us a, a decently high grade on what we've been able to accomplish in this quiet time. Um, but also everyone wants to be sensitive to, you know, not call uh, too much attention to this when, when there's more serious matters going on in the world. Yeah, that's exa- exactly right. Um, 2022 is when we expect to see those cars at Daytona. That seems, in some ways, a very, very long way away. But as we're finding out now, weeks can turn into months very, very quickly, and that will affect the business models of a lot of your OEM partners. Uh, is is 2022 still the right time to do this? Are any of your partners saying, oh, we could do with another six months, we could do with a, another year and get ourselves back on our feet? Or are the ones who are committed staying committed, John? I think um, based on the participation uh, among the OEMs in the technical working group, um, people are staying very engaged. I think um, we have a saying in the walls of uh, one Daytona, uh, which is uh, uh, there, the, the motorsports uh, center that Mr. France and family have established, uh, that the market will speak. And um, uh, we will continue to work with the OEMs, continue to get them the information that they need to make decisions. But um, as I say, their their core businesses have been uh, dramatically impacted by this, um, most importantly, making sure their employees and staffs are safe. But, um, you know, we, we need to be smart and um, people will be able to make uh, the proper decisions when business resumes. But um, the, the engagement and the enthusiasm certainly hasn't stopped. And I've been able to cascade calls into all of our OEM partners and uh, the timeline difficult to, to predict. But I, I do know that the enthusiasm for what we announced in Daytona is, is still alive and well. And, uh, again, can't say enough about the progress we've uh, made in the relationship with the ACO and, and WAC and IMSA. It's, it's, it's really strong, and the calls have been um, very cordial. Of course, everyone concerned about one another, but very strategic Good. in making sure that we follow through on what we promised at Daytona. Uh, given some of that uncertainty in the medium to longer term the next question that i'm going to ask you and i think you know where i'm going to go with this is possibly even more difficult to answer and that schedule and remaining events for for 2020 the the problem is in some respects and if i if i use this term I, i hope you understand where it's coming from we're we're shooting at a moving target here and we've got no clue which direction the target is going at at the moment, John. What what can you tell us about the IMSA schedule for the, the rest of the season? Well, it's a, it's a great question and, you know, you work so hard with our promoter partners. Uh, all of them have been tremendous throughout this. Uh, I feel so badly for Jim McKaylee and the team in, at Long Beach and uh, Bud Danker and Michael and Raina and Merrill over at Belle Isle. Um, that they had to cancel. Those were tricky, of course, because of being temporary circuits and the time that it requires to to set those up. But 
you know, the, the initial sadness over not being able to have those events this year was immediately turned to what are we going to do for 2021? So tough to lose those. Uh, at the same time, uh, we've been working very closely with everyone on opportunities later in the year, leaving ourselves gaps, moving events that we knew for sure wouldn't be able to take place. Uh, for example, Mid-Ohio, moving that to September. Also, as we place those, the idea that it would be sure nice to leave a couple gaps in there just in case sensitivity is still there and we have to be socially responsible um, with when we go back to racing. Um, and, and so I think for now, given that uh, a lot of the stay-at-home recommendations uh, by the medical professionals have us staying at home and sheltering in place until uh, April 30th or May 1st in a lot of the states in the U.S., that's sort of a window to sort of reopen the discussions about what we might have to adjust. Um, but, you know, I'm right now uh, insanely excited to return to Watkins Glen uh, the last weekend in June uh, to see everybody and hear the, the noises and, and fire up and have the cars roll out of pit lane for the first time. But at the same time, we, we need to be flexible. So here in the next uh, 15 days, frankly, uh, we'll be able to make some better decisions. But we've tried to leave ourselves some gaps bounce off uh, the, the teams and the different stakeholders' uh, ideas of what we could do to make sure we retain uh, 10 races at the very least uh, for the WeatherTech Championship. Uh, we lost a couple, so we won't have a full 12, but all the other promoters and all the other teams are, are really anxious to, to get back going, and I feel like we've got ourselves in a decent place right now if we need to move anything else around. You mentioned the stakeholders there, John. One of the stakeholders, or, the, or two of the stakeholders, are the teams and drivers. And yeah. quite a lot of the US-based teams and drivers don't just race with IMSA. They're across with SRO doing some of their events in the, the American GT at series as well. Has there been any consideration? We, we had Ryan Briscoe on a couple of weeks ago, and he brought brought this point up. Has there been any consideration between yourselves uh, and Greg Gale over at, at, at that championship for try i mean it's an impossible task at this distance but is there the will at least to try and keep uh, the inevitable clashes down to a minimum yeah really can't say enough about the cooperation and communication among the sanctioning bodies that starts with george silverman and the folks at ACUS, um really helping all the the sanctioning bodies stay stay together um constant communication with jay fry at indycar is things unveiled. Uh, clearly, Steve O'Donnell, Ben Kennedy, and our NASCAR partners, um, we share the building, but we also share uh, a lot of schedule talks on a daily basis. Been in touch with Greg and his team to make sure before we launched our change schedule a few weeks ago that we weren't um, you know, slamming uh, ourselves right onto the same weekends. And mm. It was interesting in a conversation with, with Jay Fry. Uh, Jay said, John, you can tell me any dates and it's going to be fine. Um, and that's sort of the approach I think everybody's taking is, you know, we know that this is a, a very uh, unprecedented and strange year, and we're going to have to work together to make sure we don't step on, a, on each other's toes. You know, fortunately, we've got a shared um, broadcast partner with NBC yes. in, in NASCAR and IndyCar and, and obviously IMSA. And so that's, I think, beneficial um that we know that we're going to be able to 
work with NBC and, and make sure that we provide the value to all of our partners and most importantly, uh, get the content out to our uh, fans and our audience um, on, on NBC. In some respects, it's even harder for IMSA because the, of the sheer amount of championships that you guys are looking after. And, and whilst, of course, the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship and the Michelin Pilot Challenge are the two headline acts, if you will, there are a number of other championships which are tremendously important and particularly the people who are, are racing in them. Uh, and I say that in full knowledge of that before I ask the next question. Is there an opportunity, because there's only so many weekends left in the year that we can race, and has it been discussed, John, that IndyCar, NASCAR, IMSA, possibly even SRO, could do some kind of shared bumper weekends all at the same track? I mean, logistically, I can see it would cause some problems, but in terms of getting races off, is it a possibility? Has it been discussed? Absolutely, bud. Um, you're, you're spot on, and uh, that's exactly where we've we've had uh, conversations. Uh, you got a lot of drivers doing um, both, multiple championships in, in any three of those, SRO, IndyCar, and IMSA. Uh, so we've had a lot of those types of discussions. And then one, one I'm especially proud of, for example, is um, because of our, our NASCAR uh, partnership and, and friendship and family, um, you know, I was able to call uh, with our team, Chris Ward at Lamborghini, and say, hey, uh, would you be interested in going to Road America with our partners at NASCAR and the Xfinity Championship? And Chris Ward, you know, with a big smile said, you know, John, we're going to be racing in front of a group of, of fans that may never have seen the Lamborghini Super Trofeo. And so that's a that, great that's point. The what are they going to make of those beasts? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, so you got, you know, the Xfinity cars, which put an amazing show on uh, all the time, especially at road courses. And then the next session out is the Lamborghini Super Trofeo. So can you imagine um, how exciting that is for the folks that will be on the hills at Road America? But you, you already have it pegged. I think there's been a great um, uh, proper uh, cooperation among the sanctioning bodies. And uh, wouldn't it be amazing uh, to see all those championships on one weekend at one facility? Well, that'd be brilliant. Absolutely uh, brilliant. Uh, who's fighting for which piece of pit of paddock space? Now, that's you know that's probably <laughs> worth the price of admission uh, in it in itself. <laughs> Let, let's uh, let's finish off on some very very positive news. IMSA took uh, a a decision over that what should have been Super Sebring weekend to have uh, Super Saturday, an iRacing challenge over 90 minutes, 50 entries, all in GT LM cars, four different manufacturers, uh, a, a completely sold-out grid, if you will, have it that way, oversubscribed, in fact. It was put together in record time, and it was a huge success. Down to your team at IMSA, uh, particularly to uh, all of the organisation from y- yourself uh, and, and from uh, the marketing and PR department. I know David Pettit was involved. The guys at iRacing under Drew Adamson, who I worked with on that event, were just joys to deal with. Uh, it was the first now we know of a number of races, the next of which is tomorrow evening, um, which effectively becomes the Long Beach Week weekend event. Let's put it that way. It's when it, we should have been racing yep. at Long Beach. But we're at WeatherTech uh, Raceway Laguna Seca, same state. There isn't a, uh, an up-to-date iRacing version uh, of the streets of, of Long Beach. A, a, a phenomenal, and I, I use that word advisedly, John, a phenomenal response to that first event at Sebring. And I've, I've just got yesterday afternoon the, the entry list for, for this 
week's tomorrow's event, and it's it's incredible. It it reads yeah. it reads like an IMSA, it's, it's it's an all star race. That's exactly what it is. It's yeah. an all star. You must be delighted at as how the whole IMSA community. Teams, drivers, and sponsors, and you mentioned a few of them that uh, Motul's getting involved, Michelin's getting involved with our countdown to green and post race tech. Uh, Haggerty, uh, new sponsor uh, for us on the IMSA radio side of things, and and IMSA as well, all getting involved in in the virtual world. It is uh, heartwarming, and I had a big interest in esports and e gaming as I entered this new role, and I uh, I'm sad on one hand that it took a global pandemic to bring this to the top in, in, uh, of the list in the forefront. But it just is so exciting. I, I sent a letter to our drivers on Saturday congratulating them for being selected for the invitational format. I also thank them uh, for their interest. Many of them have invested in these iRacing rigs that they might not have had before, but they sure have now. And they've been practicing uh, like they would uh, to prepare for a regular weekend. And then the names that are on our entry list of 50 drivers for tomorrow night, the interest was overwhelming. The first uh, day when we sent the entry out, uh, nipping at 80 drivers for 50 slots, and now we're looking at ways that we can do some support race um, environment to to give the guys and and gals the chance to come that might not have been selected for the invitational race, but Really exciting, an all-star uh, roster entry list for tomorrow night, as you say. Um, we've got a point structure. We've got uh, some exciting news, which I'll uh, wait until tomorrow to share about rounds four and five. Oh. But, you know, after WeatherTech Raceway, we're going to say tomorrow. It's, it's mid-Ohio. We close out at um, one of our uh, family tracks, uh, Watkins Glen. But we got a couple announcements about room, uh, round four and five that we'll, we'll bring tomorrow. Oh, that, I'm very excited uh, about that. Uh, the, our coverage starts with Michelin Countdown to Green, which will include some qualifying uh, coverage as well in sound and vision, all the usual places that you would get us. Uh, so via the IMSA website, IMSA Radio, uh, at RadioLeMond.com, uh, uh, radioshow.co.uk and if you go on that site by the way if you go on our site we're also going to have live timing for the first time that's something that you asked for I went back and watched the uh, the Sebring race John and the, the comments were tremendously mm-hmm. positive uh, I, I didn't actually yeah. watch the race I just watched the comments coming in I could barely keep up, <laughs> keep up with them I couldn't see them during the race of course because I was calling the race and the one thing that came across I think was that people wanted some live timing so we've sorted that out on our site as well and I'll just say John you've got to be delighted about this BMW uh, dominated that Sebring race, and uh, Jesse Crow, Nicky Katzberg, and Bruno Spengler, who were third, second, and first, are back. Uh, along with, uh, among others, by the way, this is by no means all the BMW drivers Townsend Bell, uh, Jack Hawks with Connor Daly, Colton Herter, and Shane Van Gisbergen, and the quick Kiwi. Porsche have drafted in Nick Tandy, who was absolutely devastated not to be in the first one. He didn't get his, he didn't get his entry in quick enough. Vantor, Patrick Long, five were. Uh, real-world class wins at Laguna, by the way, and Lars Kerner, who holds the production car lap record at the Nürburgring Nordschleife. Four drivers? Well, how about this? Just again, here's a selection. Matthias Leist, Philippe Albuquerque, Sebastian Prior, Richard Westbrook, and Harry Tinknell, and the Ferrari Challenge headed by Tony Vilander, Alessandro Balzan, and João Barbosa. Extraordinary stuff, and they take this. You talk about BMW yeah. take this seriously, John. They're all taking this seriously now. 
yes, it's under odd circumstances, but I echo what you said. Is there a way that we can keep this momentum going once we get back racing in the real world? And is that something that you would like to do? It uh, is absolutely uh, top of the list uh, besides going back to real racing. I think um, one of the the divisions I have uh, with the team, and we've done some brainstorming um, a long way off, but can you imagine while you and your team are calling uh, IMSA WeatherTech Championship race live, it's going on at Name the Circuit, in the infield, there is a tent or a structure where a group of non-professionals from our audience come in and can run a a race on the same circuit at the same time in a Mm -hmm. virtual world. And after we call the podium for the real race, those young drivers come up and we have a separate podium for them uh, to celebrate their involvement. Wow. Uh, It just would, it would just be for me uh, that that would be a major victory for, for IMSA and for our platform for sports car racing for our fans, that they would have a chance to compete in that manner. And um, as I said, the, the first day I got the opportunity to speak in, in this new role, um, it helps identify our next generation of audience. Absolutely. You know, who, are, who are your listeners, John, um, that are, are sitting by their, their computer or with their headphones on listening to you uh, that are dying to be part of the sport? And I think uh, that's an opportunity that we have now. Uh, we're going to get after it. And you mentioned so many of the OEMs. I love the fact that, you know, Townsend Bell, Jack Hawksworth, Vassar Sullivan, the Lexus program will actually be in a different brand, but they're bringing their livery over. Correct. And the calls I've received from the OEMs who, oh, John, we're so sorry. We don't have our car in there yet. We're working on it nonstop. We've got the engineers. We're working on scanning <laughs> the cars. We'll, we'll get there. You know, it's like, this, and then you have, you know, Bomberito and Tignell, a couple of my boys from uh, previous life running in uh, a Multimatic Ford, but their entry list, they're listed as Mazda Motorsports. It's just, um, nice. it warms my heart to, to see how this has all come together. Uh, it's, I know it's a big team effort, John. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Please stay safe. Uh, and uh, we can all only follow the the advice of the experts and as, as much as we might think we're experts in anything, we're certainly not experts in the situation we find ourselves in at the moment uh, thanks, for, thanks for your time best of luck and God bless mate always, uh, same to you Eve and the entire uh, IMSA radio staff and can't wait to see you all in person real soon, we'll hear you tomorrow night though yeah you certainly will John, thanks very much mate, John Doonan, president of IMSA joining us here on Midweek Motorsport. Some exciting news if you're just tuning in. Remember, you'll be able to pick this up uh, around about half an hour, 40 minutes uh, off after we go off air tonight. We'll get the archive up for that. If you missed that, some exciting news tomorrow. And uh, John wouldn't be led on it uh, on the uh, on an announcement that will happen during that race tomorrow. Michelin Countdown to Green at 10.30 UK time. And we'll have in-vision coverage of the uh, of the qualifying session. Uh, we'll also have our Porsche keys to the race. Uh, and then in the race itself, full live sound and vision, no blocks, no breaks. Uh, and if you go to uh, radio-show.co.uk, as well as having the sound, the sound and the vision, we will, Tim, this week have uh, the RSL timing screen, which I mentioned there to John, which is something new. And is that that's going to be on? That's not the big announcement, though, is it? No, that isn't the big announcement. I don't know what the big announcement is. I spoke. Um, I, I spoke to John earlier. Uh, I spoke to 
Greg actually, uh, Greg Elkin at IMSA earlier in the day to set and that he up, tell you. and he wouldn't tell me. He wouldn't tell me. It's good. It's going to happen in the race. Last tomorrow. time IMSA asked you to do something and wouldn't tell you what it was, it turned out to be the uh, convergence of the. It was pretty big. Yeah, it was pretty big. Uh, progress with sensitivity, I think the key words there from uh, John Doonan. Whilst we're talking about tomorrow night, that's 10.30. You've heard what Krillzy had to say about on the grid. That's at 9 o'clock. At 8 o'clock, it's the Tora Radio Show looking at all things online. And this week, it's the UK show with Matt and Jordan. They've got three big guests, so possibly less chance of them going off track. Uh, one is the senior community manager, Ian Webster, and art director, Corey Delaprat from Hutch Games. They're on the show to talk about F1 Manager, which is the official mobile management title of F1. Uh, they'll also have British GT's Tom, Tom Hornsby. He'll be discussing SRO's approach to sim racing. The sixth season of British GT Esports, which gets underway shortly. Just about to say that. Yeah. Tora has been uh, big with uh, British GT and yeah. it's uh, running its Esports Six. Championship for many, many years. Five. Sixth season now. Sixth season, yeah. Uh, and also Tom will be talking about how the real championship is riding the lockdowns. Eight o'clock tomorrow night here on... RS1, 9 o'clock Krillzy. Then you've got a time to get yourself an adult beverage from 10 o'clock. You've got about I'd half an hour. I'd expect Krillzy to overrun slightly, given what he said was in the show. Yes, that's true. So you true. might not have a full half hour to uh, rest there. And then straight into us at 10.30. Which, of course, will be on RS2, whereas the others are on RS1. That's a fair point, because it is IMSA Radio. Sound vision and live timing. Shea Adam is with us. Hello, Shea. Hello, John. Hello, Tim. Hello, Shay. And happy New happy Year. Happy Easter. <laughs> 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 and you would do something. You'd be very delighted, Chair. Uh, Eve and I, on Easter Sunday morning, uh, cracked open a couple of chocolate bunnies, and I ate the ears first, thinking of you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah you gotta, you gotta make them less useful. If they can't hear, they're not nearly as powerful. It's the only, it's the only rabbits we've seen this year, and they were the <laughs> lint chocolate buddies. Uh, how are you, Shea? Welcome back to the show after a few weeks. Uh, as I said, a few weeks away, but you've been lurking gently in the background and still contributing. How are you doing? Yeah, doing well. Just, uh, you know, still plucking along, waiting until we get to go back racing again. But as John Doonan says, you know, we're all. We're all at the stage where we're going to get there as soon as we can, but it needs to be safe first. So it's uh, it's bittersweet, but I haven't gone this long without seeing you and the responsible adult, so that's kind of depressing. We worked out uh, last week, I think. It slowly dawned on us that in the 10 years we've lived at this version of Houndoff Towers, uh, this is the longest number of consecutive days we've been at home. Um, which is extraordinary <laughs> since we got back from Australia on I think the 10th or the 11th of of Feb maybe somewhere uh, around about that so we're now well well into a new record uh, one of my friends uh, has uh, exceeded the number of consecutive nights he spent with his wife yes. uh, <laughs> by quite a considerable amount uh, well, over the last awkward. month and they've been married for three years yeah no well fortunately even I work together so that hasn't been a thing but certainly yes as I say staying here uh, listening, I know you were listening to John while he was on the phone there uh, mm. Shea, uh, Dave Alcock's tweeted in at Specutainment 
once again, how lucky is IMSA in having someone pragmatic and with an open mind of future opportunities when they found John Dernan to replace Scott Atherton? Uh, I'm certainly happy to hear that the IMSA drivers and teams are supporting the virtual series so strongly. And the sponsors as well. That came over there. We've got Haggerty Insurance coming on as sponsor of our uh, global broadcast booth, uh, as well as Michelin Countdown to Green and Post Race Tech, as it would normally be. And the Porsche uh, keys to the race. We've still got to get Nick Tandy on uh, tonight uh, as well. I, I mean, it's it's been a... I mean, IMSA put that first event together very quickly, but they've really, really thought about it for this one, Shane. It's a stellar, uh, a stellar uh, um, cast list for tomorrow. It, it is. Uh, it's still BMW heavy in terms of the cars. I think I counted 20 of them, only six Ferraris, but then 11 Porsches and 12 or 14 Fords or something like that might have gotten those last two backwards. Um, but a very, very strong group of IMSA regulars. We only have two drivers on the list, actually, who have no IMSA starts. That would be uh, Guyven, who's the Porsche junior. He'll be driving the third factory-supported Porsche. Mm. And um, the other one being Daniel Dye, who's somebody I don't know very much about, who's driving for Ben Kennedy Racing, actually, which is a NASCAR side of things. But everyone else who's got lots of IMSA experience, lots of names that are familiar to us. Um, very interested to see what Patrick Long can do. He's racing for right, as is normal. But you've got so many people in the championship who maybe aren't known necessarily for their eye racing expertise who are going to come in and surprise a lot of people i'm thinking particularly of gavin ernstone john because how many conversations have we had with gavin at marion's about how john morley begged him to get a simulator so he could practice driving on these weekends yeah. gavin's going to be brilliant going to laguna the site of his first win it's going to be fun uh tim what have you got for share uh well there's one big story in america uh this week uh, and it's all about Carl Larson. Yeah. Um, to start with Kyle Larson, I'd actually like to go back a couple of weeks to Bubba Wallace yes. because mm-hmm. Bubba, um, Bubba had something happen to him that's happened to everyone. Let's face it. If you're losing 5-0 in FIFA, you're going to throw your clicker across the room and just quit. Well, Bubba was a part of a virtual showdown at Bristol Motor Speedway, 150 lap race. And 11 laps in, uh, Clint Boyer, and he got tangled up. Bubba got mad. He rage quit the race, which is the official gamer term for it, and basically said, I'm out of here. Well, his sponsor, in return, who had just signed up with him, then rage quit on Bubba and said, we're out of here. We don't like supporting people who bail out. The sponsor, by the way, Blue Emu. So come on. It's sort of perfect for us because they were the ones who were sponsoring the race. And yeah, just so much goodness. We know all so about that Blue Emu now as well, don't we? Yes, the Emu. Yes. Yeah. We're, we're very well briefed on Blue Emu. So Blue Emu separated with Bubba Wallace in real life because of what he did in virtual racing. That set a precedent. Then we flash forward to this week where Kyle Larson was participating in an online race It wasn't anything official NASCAR. It wasn't being aired on TV. It wasn't anything like that, but it was being streamed. He said something that he admitted he shouldn't have said, but the fact that he said it to begin with is wrong. And it's just, it is unforgivable. He has said that he's done irreparable damage because of what he said. He was referring to somebody in a negative way, just not good. In turn, he was suspended by NASCAR 
pending his uh, deed to fill out, what is it that they call it? Sensitivity, sensitivity, sensitivity training. training. Yeah. So he has to go through that in order to be permitted to be reinstated, which he would have to go to a board and then be approved. But in the meantime, Chevrolet cut ties to Larson. He was fired by Chip Ganassi Racing after McDonald's, who is one of his three main sponsors, along with Credit One Bank and Clover, or also known as First Data, all three of the major sponsors announced that they would not be sponsoring Kyle Larson going forward. In addition to that, this is a guy who also has a lot of dirt track racing. That's his, his I don't want to say hobby, but his other area of expertise. Yeah. He won the Chili Bowl this year for the first time ever, driving a Lucas Oil-sponsored car. Lucas Oil has come out and said they are no longer sponsoring Kyle Larson. He has lost everything because he was saying something that he shouldn't have said on an online stream. So it goes to show you that all of this online gaming, it's both a blessing and a curse because we all have personalities for on-air. But these guys are getting a lot of, of response when they're off-air personality comes out and it's not as attractive uh, yes if he'd been doing that with a few of you I, by the way I, I i am not by any means condoning um the the word he used um uh, but if he'd been doing that with a few of his mates and nobody had been on his twitch feed then or one of the other guys twitch feed then you know what would have happened absolutely yeah nothing but I, i'm not condoning I, i'm just putting that out there how you said that those sponsors that have pulled out notably the, the chip ganassi guys at mcdonald's and the other big sponsors have they said that they've pulled out of sponsoring larson and his car or have they pulled out from chip ganassi because quite clearly uh, that would leave chip and the chip ganassi organization in a in a difficult situation they have severed ties with Larson. Right. Chevrolet severed ties with Larson. These are all personal level things that they have done. It's not on a business sense. And I think part of that was because of the response by Chip Ganassi Racing to say, this is not okay. We, we do not feel that having someone who uses this kind of language to refer to other people, this is not somebody we want to represent our company. So the major companies have not ended their relationships with CGR. They've only said, we're not backing this guy anymore, which makes his potential career even more difficult because he's got a couple of companies that are standing by him, but they aren't these major multi-million, multi-billion dollar corporations. Uh, there are there are some people who still want to stick by him. Plan B sales that market NASCAR models and Finley Farms have stuck by him. And there is, in some ways, surprisingly, there, there, there is a job offer or at least the, the suggestion of one. It's interesting because prior to this situation, um, Kyle Larson had been considered a very hot commodity. He's somebody who's always there or thereabouts. You put him on a mile and a half track, he's always going to be driving toward the front. You look at what he's been able to do at Homestead Miami Speedway over the last couple of years, he's a very good driver on certain tracks. There are some open seats for next year, including Stuart Haas Racing, including Hendricks Motorsports. These are the seats that people dream about their entire lives. Larson's name had been attached to those. So there was a possibility of him being in line to take those. I do not see Rick Hendricks hiring someone who has this sort of association to his name. Stuart Haas is another interesting one, though, because Kyle Larson, as I mentioned, had the dirt track success. There is a possibility that he could 
potentially transition his career into a series like World of Outlaws or a Dirt series that Tony Stewart owns. So there is a possibility for him to go through a different route to find a door back open to NASCAR. The problem is that he has been sort of shooting himself in the foot all year, though, John, because he said after he won the Chili Bowl, I'm sorry to NASCAR, and keep in mind I'm paraphrasing here, I'm sorry to NASCAR, but this is the biggest win I've ever had. Right, right. They weren't very pleased when he did that back in January. <laughs> okay. So if what, what he if leaves I, them for this, ugh. What have World of Outlaws got to say about that, team? Because I can't imagine that they as a sanctioning body really wants, they'll have their rules and regulations about standards of conduct as well. Carl is an important and visible stakeholder in the world of Outlaws community as both the driver and team owner. Carl has admitted to making a mistake and it's our expectation he'll make every effort to represent the sport in a professional manner moving forwards. He'll remain eligible to compete in all world of Outlaws sanctions events. Independently, full-time sprint car team Kyle Larson Racing, which was not involved in the infraction, will face no penalty and will be allowed to continue to compete in all world of Outlaws sanctioned events. Hmm. Final thoughts. Uh, that sounds like they want them, Cher. Yeah, that that sounds like, hey, Kyle, come on over here. We, we'll let you play in our sandbox still. Mm, okay, yeah. Cher. Thank you very much for that. Short and sweet uh, from Cher this evening, but I suspect we'll be following up on that story in the coming weeks on Midweek Motorsport. Thanks very much, Cher. Speak to you soon. Yeah, Best no to problem. everybody over there. Say hi to your mum and dad for us. Will do. Stay safe, guys. Ah, uh, you too. Shit, Adam, joining us there. That's the Gay Box Girl. Just time to squeeze in our final guest of the evening. Nick Tandy uh, has been, been very patient uh, this evening. Normally don't get to speak to him because he's busy on a Wednesday. Good evening, Nick. Good evening, Mr. Hindoff. Uh, Mr. Hindoff? Good heavens, mate. This uh, this this lockdown has, uh, has changed the whole world. I didn't realise how much there. Well, de- desperate times and desperate measures and all that. Uh, before I get on to talking to you about tomorrow night's IMSA race at uh, WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca in the virtual world, uh, tell us a little bit about how you've been filling your time because your Twitter feed has been charting a fantastic build of a, a Tamiya... Uh, truck trailer unit which you've done up in in uh, proper uh, livery <laughs> well yes indeed i've um i've got my modeling skills back out again and um uh, i sit here actually with my latest truck in build it's not quite as big as the yeah the 40 foot arctic the semi that uh, i've modeled on our on our jtr race truck but i've actually got an f350 truck in build the paint is um is getting done at the moment, and I'm I'm sat here with a load of axles and and bits of metal parts. Anybody that's into modelling, get yourself an, you know a, a, a Tamiya kit like like we had back in the in the day when I was a boy. It's uh, it's, it's great fun. I love it. It's moved on a bit. I seem to think when I saw that truck trailer unit that you you did up in JTR. I mean that had a full sound generator. I thought you'd actually gone out and recorded the truck and dubbed the the noise over the top. Of your of your model, but it's actually got a sound generator unit in it. It's all very very sophisticated. It has. It's it's an amazing bit of kit. There's a there's a speaker unit which sits inside the cab, which has got pre pre recorded sounds, and it even has um, it even has different kind of engine sounds and and preheating sounds for the you know for the glow plugs and stuff like that, depending on which uh, which unit you're putting the the control unit in it's got it's got a bloody motor on it it's got a shaker 
Um, so when you when you start the engine, obviously you know you pull back on the your stick to to fire the truck up as such, and, it, and the whole thing shakes. It's hilarious, but it's it's absolutely excellent. Nick I, Dim, I did. I did enjoy the build. No, it, 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 it looks really good. I, I did send you a 14th skill because it is an odd skill. It's a 114th skill. I did find on Amazon a 14th skill uh, Porsche that you could put inside it. So I did send yes, you a link. Yes, to that. I saw that, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the let, the trouble is, if I get if I get three of those, then I will have to paint them in the, the colours of the race cars. So that'll be an, that'll be another job. Uh, you may have enough time for that, mate. You may still have enough oh, time. That's true. Uh, yeah. However, there is a bit of competition going on uh, with Nick Tandy tomorrow evening. Uh, you didn't quite get yourself into the Super Saturday race at Sebring a few weeks ago in, in March, but you're on the list. Uh, one of a number of Porsche Works drivers. Uh, did you watch any of the Sebring stuff? I've got to tell you, it's been taken pretty seriously, Nick. Yeah, I, I did watch it, John, and actually I very nearly took part in it. Um, I was talking to him about it, and I did some of the practice, and then there was there was something I can't quite remember what happened, but um, it was it was too late at night on a on a Saturday, I think it was, and I, I couldn't take part. But in the end, whatever I was planning didn't happen. Oh no! <laughs> so uh, so I ended up I ended up watching well watching you talk about. Uh, a race that I could have well have been taking part in. So I thought this this next time I'm going to sign up. I signed up early, so yeah, I should be racing tomorrow night. How's how much uh, how much experience of of i racing and online racing do you have, Nick? Well, I've been at it a few years. I won't lie to you. Um, I enjoy the I enjoy the online racing. It's the competition aspect to it that I enjoy. Um, but I don't race a lot. I think I've looked at kind of my my stats since we've been. Um, doing a bit more sim racing this past couple of weeks. And I think last the last couple of years, I've probably done about 10, 10 or so races a year. So I'm by no means an expert, by no means. So don't expect too much. But um, but I've been putting a bit of effort in this week and doing a bit of practice. Um, so, yeah, hopefully I won't disgrace myself. I don't think we'll be troubling the, the front runners, but you never know. What, we what, might be there or thereabouts. Well, come on, uh, because I know you. Because I know exactly how you are. What have you set yourself? What top twenty, fifty cars in the field, all drivers that have got real world IMSA experience uh, uh, out out there with you. Uh, top half the field, top twenty five, top fifteen, top ten. What do you reckon? I mean, talking to you, um, if we were talking publicly, John, then I'd say yeah, you know, top top twenty five, top half of the field. I'd be be happy with that. But um, if we were if we were down the pub talking as mates, then uh, yeah, I'd say you know I, I want to be up there fighting for the you know in, in, in the in the in the in the top five. I, I watched those BMW boys dominate the last round, <laughs> and uh, a few of us at Porsche said, right, you know, we need to we need to to think about how what we can do and how we can go about trying to trying to put a bit of a, a race to them. So, uh, but the trouble is, I'm sure there's a lot of other people that have done the same. <laughs> So uh, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be. I'm sure it's going to be. It'll be good. It'll be good fun. I did take. I did take your name in vain during the commentary on the Sebring event when Serge Caron was the best Porsche. I thought that might have been hurting you a little bit. Well, yes, indeed. But I know. I know. So um, I actually did a sim event <laughs> with him a couple of years back in Germany. Believe it or not, that's when I first met Serge. So uh, yeah, he was upholding Porsche honour. Um, I don't think he's going to be in the one this no, uh, this coming this coming week. 
So, uh, yeah, it'll be up to the rest of us to to put the Porsches up there and challenge. But um, there's, I know there's some, there's, there's some good few sim drivers in it. That's... Uh, that's the trouble. There's going to be there's going to be a few bit of competition, I reckon. In the normal course of events, Nick, how much time would you have for this in between doing all your testing for Porsche, running JTR, uh, being a dad, uh, you know, all of that sort of stuff? Is it something that you use as a tool, or is it something that you use as a relaxation aid? If you if I could put it that way. Well, honestly, that's what I say. The last the last couple of three years, I haven't really done much at all. And uh, I was probably better five years ago because when I when I first went to I, I basically got my kind of rig, if you like, my sim set up um, to practice the, the US tracks, the new tracks that we're going ah. to in IMSA. Um, so back in sort of 2014, that sort of era, I was I was on it quite a bit. But, um, yeah, I've not been so prevalent on the scene recently. So, uh, yeah, it's nice to get a bit of time. And uh, it does give me a bit of an excuse to say to. Yeah, the other three in the household that I'm actually I'm going to work. Yes, uh, and work involves sitting Excellent. in the other room, yes. putting my headphones on, and uh, <laughs> yes. sitting there for a couple of hours. But then, but then the boy and, well, and the girl they come in and uh, they start watching and start grabbing the steering wheel <laughs> and saying, well, "When's it my turn? When's it my turn?" So the, the practice session. They, yeah, they don't tend to last very long. Might have to get an Xbox for them for the for the uh, for the other room. All right, Porsche keys to the race then for WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. Ninety minute race. Uh, we saw none of the top ten take tyres at Sebring. Um, what's your thoughts, Nick? Tyres or no tyres? Um, I think from what I've heard, um, well, that, and what I've been kind of practicing. Not that I've done anything more than about ten laps without crashing so far, <laughs> but tire tires are going to wear more at Laguna, a bit like in real life. Yes, absolutely. Laguna is, you know, one of the hardest tracks that we go to anywhere in the world on tires. So I think tires are going to play a part. Um, strategy is going to come into it, um, and and honestly, if we had a bit of tire wear, the the model within iRacing, racing. Uh, more within the platform for the tyre wear is really good. Yes, Obviously, it is. at Sebring, um, you know, the the wear on the tyre didn't it negated the fact to put um, to spend the time in the pits. But uh, track yeah, temperature a big uh, uh, track temperature Nick, is a is a big uh, factor uh, as well. And and i racing is clever enough to model average weather for the time of year for where the track is. I don't even know don't even know how they get started on stuff like that but I know that that's the case a few degrees either way at Sebring would have made a, a big difference is that the same as well at at Monterey uh, it will be the same we will have dynamic weather conditions um, as you say but um, I, I I mean it doesn't make a huge difference to tyre wear obviously the, the pace the pace differential is the biggest thing mm. but of course it's, it's the same for everyone um, but you might see, yeah, you know, there might be a different setups working different kind of grip conditions. Yes. So if over a 90 minute minute race, if the track conditions do do change, and they do on this, um, you know, because it's, it's, it'll be a proper race. Proper it, it rubbers so in, doesn't it? It's extraordinary. And from, and from practice and qualifying, yep. they're starting with a totally green track when you first go out for your practice, and then it doesn't, then it, they don't quote unquote sweep it. Uh, between sessions, so the the rubber build up offline and all that sort of stuff that actually evolves as the time on track evolves. It does, yeah. And as the rubber goes down, um, 
the track tends to get a bit slower actually but the i mean the other thing is that of course you don't know we, we don't know what conditions the race is going to be held in um from a time of day point of view so tailoring your practice mm. um you know you might be practicing in a certain condition and then come come the race the, the track temp is Ooh. 20 30 degrees higher as in real life and yep. the, the the you know the lap times are two seconds slower so it's all, you know, it's it's like it's like we're going racing for real. And, I, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed the Sebring pre, race. Pre-weekend uh, practice at the moment. We're on a Friday practice. Yeah, Tomorrow's exactly. race day in quali. And, and, it's, and it's an open setup, so you, you have got to settle on a setup and then get that sorted. It's not as if you've been presented with a... You know, a standardised setup. So your setup might be different from Pat Long, who I know is with you. Lawrence is is in there as well. I saw Lars Kern in there as well, and one of the Porsche young drivers as well. You've got the the young Turk with you as well, haven't you? Yeah, Jan. Yeah, yeah. He'll be he'll be racing with us, uh, Mr. Govan, and he is he is one of the top sim racers in the world. Actually, mm. before he before he came on the scene as a um, you know as a very competent double. Carrera Cup winning champion driver. Um, so he's kind of, we've been leaning on him quite a lot um, from Team Porsche, if you like. <laughs> um, have you been out so practicing yeah. together? I mean, have you literally been out there and, and set up your own little network and, and done your own race room and, and sort of followed each other's round and tried different setups and things like that? We might have done, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> might it's just, have done. It's a, it's a good way to to kind of you know have a chat with some people whilst you're at home and yeah you'll go online and you can have a bit of a a, a race and, and a practice and then wind each other up about um you know i wind lauren lauren's up about his t-shirts and all his all his rubbish ideas that he seems to have on online at the moment <laughs> and and stuff like this so it's yeah it's it's all good fun are you going to be able to take part in the, the remaining couple of races as well as we go forward on this nick or is that tba uh it's tba there is uh, an entry criteria um, of which you uh, IMSA have only signed up the drivers uh, per event at the moment. Right. But um, I, I'm hoping and I'm guessing that uh, you know full season IMSA drivers, whether that's in WeatherTech or or Michelin Challenge or Prototype or um, or whatnot. Um, are hopefully going to take the precedent on on the on the IMSA races. So, I mean, for me to to do it, it's it's nice to represent Porsche, and it's it'll be great to put something on for the for the awesome IMSA fans and general racing fans. Yeah. But if I'm if I'm rubbish at it, John, and uh, you know I don't enjoy it because I suck, then. I'll, I'll have to think about it twice again. No rage quitting now. No rage quitting. We know that could get anybody into trouble. Uh, Nick, thanks for joining us. I, I, I can only imagine how busy things are at the moment. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to get you on again in the next couple of weeks and we'll, we'll talk about national racing and what's going on with JTR and Porsche Carrera Cup and, uh, and such like. Uh, the, uh, not an awful lot to talk about there at the moment, but it'd be interesting to know what you guys are, are doing and put some perspective on us for the listeners, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm sure we'll have time at some point, John. <laughs> All right, mate. Good luck tomorrow night. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Andy, joining us as we come to the end of another midweek motorsport. Is that all we have time for? Uh, can I quickly uh, mention some DTM? Yes. Obviously, we heard earlier, just we'll be going on air, that uh, Germany has banned public gatherings until September. And uh, DTM had already issued a new calendar, which started at the Norris Ring uh, in July. Uh, 
um, which clearly can no longer happen. Uh, but the rest of the revised uh, DTM calendar, the other races in July and August, were all outside of Germany because uh, they were going to Andersdorp and they were going to St. Petersburg and they're going to Brands Hatch. Oh, really? Uh, so their new calendar, while clearly uh, is going to lose the Norris ring, uh, may not be that badly affected. Well, I'll say everything uh, that I said before, all the same conditions that we uh, we said before uh, about that. Uh, and is that all we've got time for, Tim? That genuinely is all we've got time for. All right, Big Thursday. We've mentioned it a couple of times, but let's remind you again before we go off uh, uh, with uh, all of our shows starting uh, on the Thursday evening, rather, uh, short stack starting at 8 uh, with Matt and the team for the Toro Radio Show. Then it's Krillzy and Shrebeks and, and the rest of the team for On The Grid. And then at half past 10, Michelin Countdown to Green in sound and vision, as well as live timing as we get ready for round two of the IMSA Pro Invitational uh, from the Hagany Insurance Global Broadcast booth. Michelin Countdown to Green with our Porsche Keys to Race and some Michelin a post-race interviews as well. Be Nick Damon and Ben Constantiris with me on that. Thanks to all of our contributors tonight, particularly to uh, Andy and to Bruce and to Joe for the really splendid job they did with me at the top of the show. Thanks, guys, for helping me through the Sterling Moss uh, tribute. Tim Gray was our executive producer up in London. Uh, There's no time to explain because the Llama has gone virtual. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.